No, we're going to have to work on uh, Zach's input again. Zach, let's, uh, let's get it figured out. Go ahead, just uh, select a bunch of inputs and keep talking, and then we'll let you know when you hit the right one. <laughs> oh, this again? God, you no. sound so far away. I don't know how that happens. Yeah, that's this one. Weird. Oh, that that's better. good. It's good. All right, I'm sticking with yeah. this one. And I hear in the uh, the whoa 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 in the background. Yeah, sounding good. Is awesome. That is good. Just uh, grab a marker and circle that one on your monitor. <laughs> I got a sharpie monitor. Yeah, sharpie. Best nice. choice. <laughs> I remember like uh, the old like PC gaming days. Like people would put the piece of tape on their monitor and like mark it with a marker so they know where their crosshair was. Yep. But like some people just didn't that. put the piece of tape and they just had a permanent mark <laughs> on their fucking monitor forever. <laughs> you only ever play CSGO. I mean, I guess. Yeah. It's like, uh, all right, you're good for one game. Uh, outside of that, <laughs> have fun. What's going on, Brandon? Oh, I wish I were fucking dead. <laughs> good to see you too, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungover as fuck today. Yeah. Oh, you didn't take another handful of mushrooms to counterbalance it? I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then you obviously didn't take enough where like, you're complaining about oh, no, your hangover instead of the mushrooms. Well, I took too little too late, but uh, to offset it, I ate some more a little bit ago. Okay. Beat. But less than last week. So I'm good. Okay. I, I try to like stay in like charming train wreck territory, and lately I've been like really walking on the the line to uh, like actual person that people are afraid to be around. That wasn't a oh, microdose. That's was a microdose at all. Oh, and and as an update, I fully dislocated my toe last week. That was not drugs talking. My foot is like yeah. black for like three days. Okay. God. Well, uh, quite a trooper then uh, going through through the recording with that. I am so. Dude, not gonna lie, when I got off, I like double checked my toes. Like, I know I checked my toes on the pod, and I was like, yeah, my toes definitely don't do that. But when I got off, I was like, all right, let me check this shit again. I was like, yeah, there's something fucked with his toes. Dude, like, fully, like, if, if, like, this is the little toe, I was able to bend it to a full 90 degree angle to my foot. Yeah, no, mine moves more like my pinky, where, like, the toe wants to go out with it, and there's a limit. Yeah. Like, or the side of my foot wants to go out with it, yeah. I had to hit up my buddy whose wife is a doctor and be like, is this a thing that I can fix myself? Because I'm on too many mushrooms to go to the fucking emergency room right now. Can you imagine? She was like, yeah, just tape it to the other toe. It's fine. I'm like, yeah, thank God. Is anyone else having trouble hearing me? No, you and Brian are coming in fine. Colin was, except for video. His, name, his name's not Colin. It's Connor, right? His name is Connor. Yeah. Why, isn't, why, why are you guys letting me do that? <laughs> Make an ass of myself. <laughs> I thought that's what your I thought that was your stick. No, no, I just I confuse all you Irish white guys. I can't help it. <laughs> Beret white people based. Close enough, right? Yeah, kind of. Sorry for calling a calling. Oh no, yeah, <laughs> no worries. Um, all right, so well, I'm still Colin coming on soon. Yeah, so I'm gonna do on Tuesday nights. I'm gonna record with Caitlin and Colin to just talk about CIA operations. And I want to do that for like 
I mean, since those are endless, we can do that for like ever. I just yeah, want to do it enough until we like catch up on our Patreon feed because we haven't. I realized yesterday we haven't posted the Patreon in a month, so like we're charging people for nothing. Well, I just had somebody hit me up in the Discord realizing we didn't do movie night. Yeah, yeah, we've been slacking. So. Yeah, well, I've also been having like plans on Fridays, or my wife's been making plans on Fridays you. that I have to attend. I'll fucking dare you? <laughs> know that this podcast is the most important thing, right? Fuck your feelings. <laughs> Yeah, I was going strong there for a while, and then just fucking the move Actually, happened. Actually, I meant now, to do it the other night. I wanted, to, um, I wanted to stream The Hunt for Red October the other night, and then I just forgot to do it. Which, like, that could be a really base commun- like, title for a communist movie. Like, yeah. Red October Revolution 2.0. I mean, of all the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan movies that I like, um, that one features the most commie shit. It still doesn't yeah. paint them in a good light, but there's of course they sing they sing the USSR national anthem in that like on the submarine. It's great, pretty sweet. Have y'all watched Red Dawn yet? Because that would be uh, you know, no, no we gotta do that one. <laughs> oh, which one? The one where Russia invades or the one where North Korea invades? <laughs> <laughs> well, the one where North Korea invades sounds infinitely dumber. So it is. They go, we don't have uh, we don't have propaganda state media here in the US. Okay, bud. <laughs> sure. Meanwhile, every Hollywood movie that has any military in it is literally funded by the US military. Yeah, not just funded, but like script and plot editing edits by the military. Yeah. Signed yeah. off. Yeah. Like I don't like that line of dialogue. Yeah, we're gonna yeah, that doesn't paint us in a good light. We're gonna just gonna change that real quick. They go after every little thing, too. It's wild. They'll like, just be like the slightest little, you know what? They'll change the word choice just because, oh, that one little thing isn't quite right. Yeah, it's pretty fucking nefarious. I like yeah. the idea of painting them in a good light is still just like murdering fuck tons of people. Yeah, what was it? Some fucking movie. I thought I was like, go, I was watching it. Um, it was a new Michael B. Jordan film. Um... The one where he plays like a robot kind of soldier guy? Uh, no, I don't think so. It was, uh, what was it? It was his new, he was like a fucking CIA agent. He was playing just, one, or, or Michael B. Jordan just is a CIA agent? Like, oh, he, he was playing, fine. well, either or. Uh, oh, God, they're making another creed. Without Remorse, that's the one. I never heard of that. Yeah, it was like his newer film came out this year. Um, he's like a CIA agent who like ends up getting like um, double crossed by the CIA, but like he doesn't know it, and he's like trying to figure out who double crossed him, and then he finds out like it's the CIA. But then they like somehow at the end of the film they make it like not the CIA. I'm like, okay, the ending just fucked this film because at least it was like, oh, the CIA are the real bad guys. Okay, cool, this film's dope. And then they fucking somehow twist it where it's like, oh, it's not just the CIA, it's this whole, like, global network. And like, oh, fuck off. Yeah, I've been, like, there's one, like, comedy true crime podcast that I listen to. And I was listening to it last week, and it really clicked in me. It's something I, like, should have noticed years ago, but only noticed now. I don't understand how there are reactionary true crime people. Because every true crime story is the story of, well, this person got away with killing 30 people because the cops didn't care because all the victims were black. Or, like, every episode is just 30 different ways that the cops could have easily solved this if they had tried to at all. 
Yeah, like before I even was like real leftist, like I was still like really into true crime. And like that was when I was like, oh, cops are fucking worthless, dude. Like, I thought true crime the was like, I picked up. I thought true crime was all just white girls going missing. And like usually, the murder the it's, it's the media. That's the media, not like the podcasting and like documentary side of true crime. Mm. There was uh, that one cop in France that, or. It was a serial killer in France, turned out to be a cop, had been active for like 20, 30 years, and they, I think they only found out about it after he died, and they compared his DNA or something. Yeah, uh, the, one of the top true crime podcasts, like uh, Serial Killers, they just did a five-part series on like the top professions of serial killers. Number one profession of serial killers, police. Yep, I think I saw somebody tweet that the other day, and I was like, I'm not fucking shocked by this information. Oh, it's not <laughs> shocking at all. Um, oh, oh, Ryan, they caught that serial killer in France because they suspected him, and they asked for a, uh, like a, a DNA sample, and he just killed himself. Oh, okay, nice. Well. So I feel like if a cop kills himself, that's their redemption arc. <laughs> <laughs> they become a good cop. They either need to do some, like, Dorner shit or just off themselves. Like, well, Dorner's whole backstory is, like, wild, where he, like, uh, actually was trying to be, like, the good cop and, like, yeah. change things from inside. And, like, I remember the one story I heard that was, like, uh, they were on a bus because they were, like, I think walking, like, beats. And so they would, like, load into a van and they would drop them off on their different beats. But all of them were in the van together, and one of the white cops was dropping the N-bomb, and Dorner told him to stop, and he kept doing it. So Dorner, like, climbed over the bench seats and attacked the fucking dude, and guess which one of them got reprimanded? Of course. Yeah. God damn it. All right, did you guys want to get into it? I imagine you guys probably want to do, like, a car talk section as well, right? Uh, maybe, maybe, like, a brief one. I don't know what you yeah. guys have to talk about. Um, I got no developments. I don't know about you, Ward. I don't know if you have anything car-related. No, I don't. I'm not a car guy. Sorry. Mine's still dead because I haven't touched it since we even last talked about it, so it's no different. <laughs> oh, that's, that's car guy if I've ever heard it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, same. <laughs> now you were really enjoying the show that my cats are putting on for you guys. Oh, I mean, it's been making me miss having cats. Like, I love my dogs. Like, I, I think I'll just have dogs for the rest of my life, but... Seeing the cats fight, and I saw like the back leg, like really rapid kick thing. Like, that's a <laughs> that purely cat thing. Like, I, I missed that. Brandon, I think you need to get like a, a little miniature wrestling ring and like just live stream them, you know, fighting in there. They don't do this that often. <laughs> we'll start off. I'll let you guys talk about uh, your recent car projects and everything, and then we can get into part two of our Walter Ruther discussion, learning about his life and times and uh, anything he accomplished as a labor leader. So, uh, yeah, if you guys want to take it away with your. Car projects. What do you got going on? Well, who are we starting with? Yeah, what order do we want to go in? Uh, let's just be easy and go alphabetical. I'll, I'll hammer this out real quick. Go for it. Um, this week was not uh, completely fruitless. I found a machine shop to resurface uh, the cylinder heads that I found were kind of messed up. Not only did they charge me a very reasonable price, their turnaround time was about 20 hours. and That's not bad at all. That's crazy good. When I showed up to pick them up, the guy charged me 20 bucks less than he had said. So cool. that is a win right there. Yeah, I am sold on this place for machine work in the future. Uh, I went ahead and gave the dude an extra 20 bucks. I'm like, you know, go fucking buy lunch. I was expecting to wait a week to, and be charged over. So 
I don't think as a machinist myself, I've never been tipped for it. So maybe, maybe I made the guy's day. I don't know. <laughs> I will. Otherwise I'm, I'm putting a new, new four pans in my buddy's box truck because they just rotted to shit and he's trading me a transmission to do so. And it's the transmission I want to put in my van. So that's, that's a win. That's a and, real big win. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've finally figured out a, a paint scheme and name for the chopper that I'm building, and it's really fucked up, so I probably shouldn't even talk about it on, on air. But I'm, I'm going to do, like, water slide decal transfers of, like, pixelated gore on my gas tank. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I paint it, like, really nice, like, metal flake, gold leaf, but, like, I want, like, extreme facial injuries. Uh, <laughs> because, like, it... The listeners can't tell this, but I'm like a gnarly fucking looking dude. So, like, I wanted something nice, but that also suits me. So I'm just going to make it really, like, well done, but also fucked up. And I'm naming it the five stages of grief. I like that. That's cool. It's just got that cool chopper feel. I'm with it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to see that when it's finished. I that I'm not I'm having trouble visualizing the concept, but it sounds interesting. Just be my friend in five years. Okay, <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> yeah, other than that, I've, I've wrenched on the motor a little bit, but that, that's about it for me. So, Brian, hand it off. Uh, well, cool. I haven't done a whole lot. Um, I did order a bunch of parts for my MR2. I forget what we talked about last week, but I, I've decided just to basically replace basically everything, the clutch and any bearings and whatnot in there. I don't know, a couple other things. I might... Well, I probably won't do poly-filled uh, motor mounts, but I do have some spare motor mounts that I could do that with if I needed to. Wait, and then, so what was why, I going to say? Wait, why, why not the uh, poly-filled bushings? That seems like a solid upgrade. I mean, I don't know if it really needs it. Like, it's only making maybe 100 horsepower anyways. It feels great. I have solid mounts, by the way. And uh, it feels fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> feels like a race car all the time. I don't know. I mean, it's not that hard to change motor mounts on this car, so like I might just do it anyways, you know, like have a set because I've got a, a set that's OEM rubber ones that are in decent shape. I might just, you know, be able to switch those out if I want to. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'll, I'll look into that a little bit more. I also ordered a new intake gasket for my uh, Sabaru. So eventually I'm going to do the, you know, when I'm done with the MR2, I'm going to put the Sabaru in the garage and take off the intake manifold because I got to redo the fuel lines underneath that that you know subaru in their infinite wisdom decided to run rubber hoses on top of the engine underneath the intake manifold for the fuel and they yeah. dry out and rot and crack and leak uh huh. so that's what's happening and uh it's it's real fun it leaks fuel when it's cold and everything kind of shrinks up a little bit but what else have i been doing oh i uh went on a date to um meow wolf in denver the other day which was pretty sweet I mean, it's not automotive or whatever, but would recommend I was a little bit more sober than I had, I had hoped for. So, you know, make sure you're not, you know, too sober when you go there. Just not a problem I ever encounter. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what is, what is Meow Wolf? It's just, I mean, there's another one. It started in Santa Fe, I want to say. And it's like yeah. some sort of like, or at least I don't know what it is right now, but it started as like this art collective thing. And the idea is that, like, you go through these different rooms and it's supposed to tell, like, a story. But it's basically the premise is that, like, you get in this elevator and then you go up to, like, you're in, like, another dimension or something. And it's like, it's like you're walking through, like, the set of a sci-fi movie, like, made by Jim Henson or something. 
you know, there's this one part that's like, I don't know, Fraggle Rock and another part that's like dystopian sci-fi thing or whatever. It's pretty interesting. Okay, cool. So edibles. I'm pretty upfront about my, my uh, hallucinogen use on this. I, I always feel like I'm in another dimension. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I need your Meow Wolf. Being on psychedelics in Meow Wolf is uh, a whole nother level. It's a lot of fun. I went to the one in Santa Fe a couple years ago, and I'm going to the Denver one later this month. So Nice. Yeah, I was about to say, that does sound like you know this from experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots and lots of psychedelics makes a great day. Always true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and one more thing. The, the listeners can't see it, but you all can see right up here. I've got my MR2 poster that I put up on the wall. So, you know. Nice. Repping that. Oh yeah, MR2. It's actually a, it's a Japanese sales brochure, so it's you know like twenty pages or whatever. So I can just you know pull out the push pins and switch it to a different page if I'm feeling like a change. But I like this one. I like that color scheme, the two tone sort of beige and dark green. I think is what it is. Oh yeah, I did. Zoom in on your video, but I see it. Yeah. So that's all I got, Connor. Uh, on my end, uh, the Nissan had the engine rebuilt. Everything looks good i think when we last week we couldn't start it so we did manage to get it started after some tweaking and stuff um which i think i may have i think we actually had gotten it started um when we last spoke so it was at the tuner shop and they did the break-in on the dyno and we did skip the 500 mile break-in post the initial startup and all that. So like they ran it on the dyno for, you know, half an hour or something, did their little procedure to get the uh, piston rings to seat. Then they changed the oil and then they just, you know, did it on the dyno, did the actual full tune with like pulls and all that. So it made pretty not great power numbers, although I wasn't expecting to make, you know, a lot of power. I, I mostly so built like, the motor to. So like what, three, three fifty? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was about 305 horsepower, which is, again, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's not awful. And no, the wheels. I mean, yeah, at the wheels. Decent. Yeah, it's pretty good. It feels good. Not gonna lie. Um, for, for a race car that you drive. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I mean, nowadays you can go to the dealer and get, you know, something that's going to come out with four and five hundred horsepower that, you know, so this is not that. But on the track, it's it's pretty decent. Um, it was good, you know, obviously before that making a lot less horsepower. So it's, it's definitely an upgrade. 300 horsepower that you put together yourself is way fucking cooler than four or 500 horsepower fresh off the dealership. Yeah, no, I, I hundred percent agree. The torque was a little bit lower uh, than I expected. So there's, I think some kind of limiting factor somewhere. And I think it's probably somewhere in the air intake, but that's something I can worry about later. The torque was at like 274 max. So this was more top end power rather than low end torque, which I, I did know it was going to be that. It was just a little bit more pronounced than I expected. So anyway, I drove it from the uh, I picked it up from the tuner and uh, on the way to the other shop, the car died like four times. <laughs> so uh, something is not quite right. We don't know what yet, but uh Something, you know, isn't quite there, which we're running some tests, you know, like doing an idle air volume relearn and all that shit. Typical procedures to account for some of the modifications and all that, which I would have hoped the fucking tuner would have done. But, you know, 
they didn't. So I was a little bit surprised. I was like, hey, when I pick this up after it's gone through a full dino tune, the car shouldn't die on the way home. That's, you know, probably not what I'm looking for. So I was a little disappointed. My guy at the shop is still kind of fucking around with it. We had a couple other odds and ends to finish anyway. So he's looking at it, trying to run some you know, various procedures to see if he can make it better. Uh, and maybe the computer just needs to like learn some shit because they do kind of have to teach themselves. So it may just have to like work itself out for a while. We're not sure, but I should know more next week and uh, it may need some tweaks. And, you know, from my perspective, I'm like, Hey, I don't know, maybe it'll make a little more power if the thing's running right and doesn't fucking die when it's not supposed to. So who knows? Or yeah. maybe you built an engine that only wants to run at like five grand. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's just it feels good up up top. It really does. You know, it's got more to give, so it does feel very good. It's a really, it's a different power band, so it's gonna take some getting used to for sure. But I don't know. It's running. It it's working. It's just not optimal yet. So more to come, I guess. Yeah. And you got like headers and an intake and a couple other things on there too, right? I got everything. Anything you can yeah. put on there besides <laughs> besides a turbo or supercharger, it has it. So nice. It's cams, awesome. ported heads, ported intake, you know, all that shit. Higher compression pistons. What's your bottom end? Is it all forged? Mm-hmm. All forged. Sick. Yeah, Wiseco pistons and eagle rods. Nice. Yeah. So I have no criticisms of what you've built. Yeah, it's it, I mean, I can come up with something, but it wouldn't it wouldn't be from the heart. <laughs> no, it's it should work really well for drifting, because, again, it had plenty of power for drifting before this. Now it should be really easy to keep it in drift at those higher speeds. And I should be able to, like, put down a little more grip with it. So it should be better. But I'm back in training wheels. I got to get used to shit again. So. Back to the basics. But anyway, that's all I got. Ron, are you going to be able to sneak in another track day this season, or are they pretty much closed up for the year where you are? This season, for sure, yeah. I'm trying okay. to do an event in Ohio in three weeks now, and I'm trying to negotiate around Dayton. There's a track. So, yeah, we could talk about that later. Um, so I had to like get some safety equipment done like fire extinguisher and fucking uh i gotta get new helmets and all that stuff to run this event so i'm kind of up against the clock on that should be a fun event if i can make it otherwise i'll do some more local events here till it's snowing at least um i will run it this season but i'm trying to get out to ohio right now because that's a pretty good track should be i've never been to it should be fun and we'll see you know if i if i can get out there whenever i do get out there i'm going to try and meet up with uh brett from street fight so Sweet. that would be fun. Yeah. So oh, yeah. we'll see if I can get there. But otherwise, I'll drift on the street. It's fine. <laughs> I will be. As long as the car is running, it's going to slide. So Sweet. that's awesome. So, Zach, uh, what, uh, what have you been up to? Oh, man. Had another fun time with the Danger Ranger. That thing has Ooh. been a fucking pain in my ass. Yeah, I got the transmission in finally. It shipped. Let's see. I think the ship date was September 16th from florida and i just had to go pick it up from a local warehouse on friday because it wasn't going to be to my home delivery address until later this week so i'm going to try to get uh, my uh my residential delivery feedback from them because they did not deliver it residentially i went and had to go fucking pick it up because it's been three goddamn weeks 
that it's been shipping for. So I got the transmission and I went to install it and I put the torque converter onto the transmission. I was going to put that package up onto the back of my engine, you know. I had my dad helping me out. And, uh, you know, we we're getting up there, getting it kind of lined up, working it up on there. And uh, at some point, the torque converter moved forward. And so it was up against the flex plate. And so my dad's like, oh, let's just uh, let's turn the motor over, get the flex plate lined up. And then the torque converter will be on the flex plate. And then we'll put the transmission up onto the, the torque converter. I was like, I don't know, man, that seems like the wrong way to do it. I feel like we're just going to fuck with it for like two hours and then be back in the same place we were to begin with. I really think we should just pull it back off and you know, do it torque converter to transmission and then put that on the engine. He's like, nah, man, nah, it's good. I've done this a bunch of times. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, man, I got a bad feeling about this. I feel like it's going to get fucked up. He's like, it'll be fine. Trust me. I've done it before. You trust me. We're doing it this way. I'm not pulling it back off and redoing it. I was like, all right, man, cool. So we get it on there and we get some bolts started and get everything sucked up together. And uh, we go to turn the motor over by hand and it is fucking seized. Will not turn. Uh, oh, so I was like, okay, something serious is wrong here. Pull it back off. And we go to turn the input shaft on the transmission by hand. My brand new rebuilt transmission. And it's just locked. It won't turn at all. I was like, oh shit, here we go. So. We called around to some local transmission shops and talked to, talked to one nearby, and they were like, yeah, uh, it's probably your front pump. Uh, you probably broke the front pump and uh, you know, pushed the input shaft into it and basically just stuck them together accidentally. But that's going to be like two or 300 bucks to repair, and they said they'll have it done Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll see if both of those things come true. But uh, yeah, that's where I am now. That sucks, man. transmission. So yeah. I'm pretty bummed. To make sure I understood you correctly, you broke it when you were trying to put it on, or it, or it came broken from the rebuild? We broke it trying to put it on. Okay. I thought that's what you were saying, but I was hoping that... I was like, no, call them. Tell them it's bad. Oh, yeah. No, if, if there was any chance that it was like that delivered, I would be calling them for sure. But no, I, uh, I'm 100% certain it was the fact that the torque converter did not line up with the uh, input shaft, and we just sandwiched them together and it just shoved the input shaft down into the front pump yeah yeah, I didn't last <laughs> yeah no definitely not i was pretty pissed well for any listeners who are wondering we're all telling horror stories about you know our working on our cars and stuff but as brandon often says it is still cheaper to fuck it up two or three times on your own than to pay someone else to do it yep, yep. that is wise words that's how I learned to do everything I know how to do is refusing to pay someone else to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, labor is generally 50% of the cost of any job. If you yeah. take it to a shop. You're and like, the workers not getting that, by the way. 50% labor. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> not even. The last construction job I did, a lot of the people who were doing stuff on people's houses or building parts of people's houses were learning how to do it on YouTube like the day before doing that process like on someone's house or whatever. And it's like Oh, that's reassuring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could pay that premium for that labor for quote unquote professionals and that kind of thing is still gonna be happening. And it's like you may as well just like skip the step in the middle and learn how to do it yourself off of YouTube and do it. Yeah, I don't think that you could pick five people off the street and not have at least one of them that's taken their car to a mechanic or had some work done by a professional where it didn't just get absolutely butchered. Mm -hmm. 
Because, I mean, like, realistically, even for even like a top quality professional, there's still room for error. Like, people make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's incompetence and sometimes it's an honest mistake, but it still sucks either way. So, I personally just prefer being mad at myself. So, you know, it's easier for me if I fuck it up, be like, well, damn it, self, why did you do that? Than for me to like spend an extra 1500 bucks to, for someone else to fuck it up and be like, well, wait, what? What did they give you money for? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find it way easier to forgive myself after I fuck something up. I'm like, oh man, at least I learned something. If somebody else fucks my stuff up, I'm like, oh, it's you and me, buddy. It's on. <laughs> Not that I can do anything, but I'm going to be mad at you and hold a grudge for a long time and tell him. I mean, actually, I can remember every instance of a mechanic fucking up something on my car, no matter how minor, whether it was the seal on my tires or ripping the little plastic guard off of the underneath the oil pan where you go to, if you go to like Jiffy Lube and instead of like you, when you have like a new Japanese car or something, there's like a little plastic cover over that where they need to access to change the oil. And instead of just unscrewing it, they just rip it right off because they know no one's ever going to look under their car except for this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. And Mike, your uh, construction story reminded me there was a thread on Hexbear the other day that was um, horror stories from work. And there were some pretty terrible ones from people working in construction. One was like a 14 year old undocumented kid who like fell down and hurt himself and like, well, it happens, you know, was what the boss said. Yeah. Like I did, he said he was an adult. I don't know. There's some pretty terrible stories on that one. Um, I did also think of uh, another thing about my MR2. I, I started taking some parts off uh, to gain access to the transmission. And um, one of the cool things about that car is since the engine is in the back, if you take the trunk lid off, you can just sit in the trunk and work on the engine right there. It's very convenient. Yo, so. that's the case with my early vans. I can like sit inside on the wheel well and just like pull my fucking intake if I want to. Yeah. That's one thing I miss about old American cars is they have monstrous engine bays. <laughs> I, I can just sit inside the engine bay and work on stuff now. I'm like got 11 extensions and wobble sockets stuck together to get one bolt. Because there's right. no room in modern cars. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's going to be the case when I tear into the Subaru. But thanks, Zach, oh, yeah. also for, uh, for volunteering to loan me your, your engine hoist. That's going to help out quite a bit. Oh, hell yeah, buddy. I'm excited to come give you a hand. I've never worked on anything rear mid-engine before, so it's going yeah. to be a lot of fun. I mean, it's basically just a Corolla, but backwards, you know. It's nothing. It just makes it a thousand times cooler. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it takes. Just put the engine on the other side of the seats and now cool factor times a million. Well, it's just like a lot of American engineering. It's a good idea, but backwards. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that uh, pretty much does it for the car updates, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, anybody down for a quick break before we get started or anyone cool with that? Yeah, if you want, cool with that. I can go to the bathroom. Yes. Okay. I would like to imbibe some liquor. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, Smirk a burl. I don't know if you. I'm. I'm a little high today. I'm. That's why I'm a little more reserved than was last week. Sweet. (laughs) Um. While we're on this break, I I took the perfect amount of mushrooms today. Oh, perfect. (laughs) All right, Brandon. There you go. (laughs) Glad to hear it. I'm coherent, but you are so colorful. (laughs) <laughs> what were you gonna say Connor? sorry um i was gonna say uh i i am still having a hard time seeing you ward and zach uh you guys yeah, are just two rotating zach. boxes I on my end up on seeing zach yeah so i don't know if there's like that's fair most people do <laughs> <laughs> 
right, let's uh, let's jump out of here and then see if that fixes the video issues. All right, sweet. So yep, see you guys in a minute. Wait, what do I do now? How do I stop? Welcome back, Ward. Hey, how's it going? All right. I tend to be very upfront about things, so in general, if I seem like I'm like kind of a train wreck, I'm bipolar as fuck, and I've been cycling like super crazy lately, so I'm actually legitimately going off the rails, but yeah, I got no excuse. I'm just, I, I can watch myself doing it, but I'm like, well, I don't know what to do about this. Well, this, uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, observation for myself to see what I do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a wild. Like, I actually found, like, a forum online this week when I was, like, doing some reading about it. And it, it, was, it was a very validating experience because, like, all of these things that make me feel genuinely, like, fucking nuts. I was just reading about, like, hundreds of other people being like, yeah, I go through this thing. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's so familiar. Wild. Yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a bipolar, but I have BPD and, like, a few other things. And, um, like, group therapy was a big one that helped me out, where I was, like, like get over the stigma and being, like, oh, like, yeah, just fucking, this shit sucks. And then hearing other people's stories, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, like, this is extremely validating for me. I don't know why it never occurred, because I, I, like, I've known I was bipolar since I was fucking 16, so I don't know why it never occurred to me to, like, go online and, like, read what other people were experiencing until last week, uh, some 20 something years later uh but i did and was like oh holy shit what i am going through is normal for a certain division of damaged people oh yeah it makes you not feel so alone in it and dealing with it too you know it doesn't feel like it's just happening to you and it helps you realize oh shit okay i'm not alone in this there are other people struggling with this you know maybe i don't have to keep this to myself it's like really specific experiences where I like, because when you, when you, you grow up, you only have one perception of the world and it's your own. So it, to some extent, even when it's obviously feels wrong and broken, it's your, you have nothing to gauge it against. Yeah. Like I, I went on a medication that was highly effective for about a year, a number of years back and like literally had to go into therapy that like a few weeks later and be like, is this just like how fucking regular ass people deal with life? This is so fucking easy. How the fuck was I on hard mode for 35 fucking years? And they were like, well, you know, uh, there's no such thing as normal, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, shut the fuck up and just give me a real answer. Like, do normal people do A instead of B? And they're like, well, yes. Yes. In fact, what you were experiencing is normal human feelings. I'm like, that's fucking wild. Yeah. For me, like when they're like, yeah, you're uh, we're diagnosing you with major depression. I'm like, Wait, so you're telling me not everybody's just feels like shit all the fucking time? So, like, <laughs> so there's people that don't feel like this? Like, how do I do that? I want yeah. that. <laughs> Give me, yeah, yeah. I, had, I had a psychiatrist one time, like, while I was on that medication, asked me something like, oh, have you been having any, like, suicidal thoughts? And I'm like, listen, I'm going to be honest with you, but I need you to understand what I'm saying genuinely. Like, yes, of course I'm having those thoughts. But it's so much reduced from normal that this is good. This is this is like a passive thought instead of me like considering it on the daily. And they were like, "Okay, that's worrisome." And I'm like, "It's not worrisome. It's fucking progress." It's, yeah, no, that that's incorrect. It's only worrisome if you have like plans. 
you know, like suicidal ideation is one thing compared to like suicidal planning. Like then it's a then it's something that needs to be addressed. I agree with you in general. For me specifically, like I get really bad and then I get hammered and then I wake up with loaded guns in my bed. So like I don't think that if it happens there's gonna be planning involved. Yeah. Well for most people it like it's when it gets to the planning stage that it needs to be addressed. Yeah, like in general I, I do agree. This shit got so heavy. Mike <laughs> Mike, say something good about Stalin. I mean, what is there bad to say about the guy? Like, shit, he beat the fucking Nazis. That's what I needed to hear. Nice. Stalin is Papa, dude. <laughs> yeah, we got real heavy while you were gone. Bring in, uh, bring in your happy weed emotions right now. <laughs> I actually was just about to check the bill score and see how uh, depressed and sad my family is going to be for the rest of the day. Or happy, I, I'm sure yet. Let me see. No, I, uh, I had a, an earnest moment where I was kind of being apologetic for the fact that every time you guys have encountered me, I've been kind of a train wreck, but... I'm bipolar and I've been like cycling lately and I'm basically just going off the rails and just whatever, you know. You've been fine. I mean, I will say I, I definitely would not have conducted myself so appropriately on mushrooms. So applause to you. I'm on mushrooms right now, too. It's, it's a pretty normal way of being for me. Yeah. But last week, I definitely ate a lot more than I intended to. But you, you were well. I mean, I think the toe breaking moment, it's going to be like a semi legendary moment for our podcast for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I can't remember if I put, I think it was in our group chat or maybe I sent it to Connor. I was just like, fuck, man, we can't let this get out. Because now in the black book of communism, like me dislocating my toe counts for like 10 deaths. Sultanishan <laughs> is like, he's like amped up in his grave. I have, I've, I'm infested with stink bugs. I don't know if you guys are familiar with these things. Have you seen them? That's a fucking terrible. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you saw me running around with a little, I had my wife pick up a little handheld vacuum at the store yesterday she's like picking up groceries i'm like just grab whatever little 30 dollar vacuum you can get that has a tube attachment that looks like a stink bug will fit through that tube she's like i got you she grabbed this thing it's perfect and we're using it solely for vacuuming up these bugs and i will say if you're gonna get infested with a bug hope that it's stink bugs because these are the dumbest fucking bugs in existence they literally just buzz around and then bonk into shit and then they just move slow and like you just go right up to them with the vacuum, and they just they just face their demise head on and just accept it. They just go right in the tube. They have no problem. Like that, I can be so brave one day. I know. They're like the Che Guevara of bugs, like <laughs> except without a cause. Like they have no they have no goal. Like... Not that you know about. Well, so far their goal seems to be to just walk around my house real slow on every surface, like. <laughs> See, that's capitalist thinking on your part that everything has to be for a goal like some of us exist just be- for the sheer joy of existence and where's the misery of existence but uh, i was riding the train the other day and this uh i don't know middle class bougie looking family in front of me was freaking out because there was roaches on the train and they were they, they all stood up and were holding on to the the rails on overhead and, and i'm just like I'm just going to keep sitting here, whatever, fuck it. I'll just sit and fill if I need to. If I ever start a story with, so I was riding the train the other day, it's probably a drug reference. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was actually on public transit. I'm I'm just saying from my perspective. Dude, I don't, my cats love me so much right now. Because they want the attention because they're on camera. Well, I was like gone for a solid three hours today, so they are losing (laughs) their minds. No, Brian, that's, just, that's, that's how high I am. I literally thought you were making a joke and saying that the roaches themselves grabbed the overhead rails. Oh, no. The, 
Yeah, no, no. The the white bougie family in front of me was freaked out because there were roaches on the train, and they all stood up. I'm like, the roaches are not going to crawl up into your seat and like go in your pockets or whatever, you know? Yeah, they're like not maybe out with you. Yeah. <laughs> like you might be sitting in hobo piss on the seat a little bit, but you know, just don't think about it. Well, I've what been do you success use? with Firefox? What do you use? Um, what am I using? Oh, Microsoft Edge. Okay. Why, what's up? This this is a terrible choice. Yeah. What? I mean, it just came with my computer. I haven't installed anything else. Like, I could use, um, I use DuckDuckGo on my phone, actually. Yeah, I use DuckDuckGo on my phone, but on computer, I use uh, Firefox. And then, okay. if, like, I have a very, like, hardened version of Firefox where it's, like, no tracking, anything like that, but it causes a lot of websites to break. So if I go to a website and it doesn't work, then I open up a Brave browser. Yeah, I think I need to try Brave. Uh, that, I think that's a better alternative to Chrome. I think it's based off of Chrome, but... Yeah, it's based off of Chrome, but it's uh, more privacy-oriented. Like, if you're yeah. going for, like, um, best privacy out the box, Brave is the choice, but if you harden Firefox, it's way more secure. Yeah, I've got a bunch of those plugins that like block ads and block JavaScript and all that kind of stuff. It works pretty good on Firefox. I've yeah, just accepted I, I my, my Firefox. I've just accepted my surveillance. You know, anyone, anyone watching, listening, whatever, they know, whatever. I am never going to be good enough with cybersecurity to outsmart whoever wants to watch. So I go, mm, you know, whatever. Here I am searching yeah. up, you know, Walter Ruther and... <laughs> CIA yeah, it's, misdeeds, you know? Yeah, it's basically like just figuring out your own personal threat model where it's like, okay, what am I trying to do? It's like trying to hide from like the NSA. Like that's damn near impossible. Dude, but like I... at least not giving your information to like corporations like Google and like mm. Facebook and other data collection services. Like you could do that. It was 11 or 12 years ago when I found out about my FBI file. And at the time I had no social media and like, I didn't even have a cell phone for a long time, like, stuff like that. And I still had a fucking FBI file. Did, so, we, did we talk about this, the FBI file thing? I know um, we, somebody, I, I feel like I've talked about this on someone's podcast. Uh, I just can't remember where. Okay, so my thinking is, and let me know if I'm crazy. It's like if you, because I know what you can do is you can request a copy of your FBI file, right? Oh. Like you, just, it, you fill out a form online, apparently. It's like on the FBI website. You just fill out a form. You put in, like, your name and whatever you're identifying info and then they send you a copy like a physical copy of everything that they have on you but i feel like doing that is like please compile a file on me if you have not already and then <laughs> that's send it my to thinking you. too i'm like ah, i don't want to ask <laughs> yeah yeah like if they don't have one they're making one now <laughs> right because it, it, there's Wait, like why a are you asking us like a couple of weeks it's like so yeah. <laughs> uh, funny enough the reason i know i have an fbi file is because a friend of mine did that he I don't think it was as straightforward as you're making it sound, but he he needed to find out if uh, something he was going to do was going to like throw up some red flags or something. So he got a, uh, he had a private investigator run a back a really thorough background check on him and got a copy of his FBI file, and it was my best friend. So he for what and again like I never figured out like given the level of technology and surveillance that was like common knowledge at that time. I don't know how it was pieced together, but my FBI file was referenced in his FBI file. Hmm. Solid. Hey, that's so, a good sign. 
You're doing it right. Yeah, but that's like, I also kind of wonder if it almost doesn't matter anymore, not for like the reasons like where it's okay, but it's like if you have a file on 7 billion people, does the fact that there's a file matter? Because at that point, it's buried uh, in a mountain of information. Like the I'm Spartacus thing, like everybody's the guy you're looking for, so no one's the guy you're looking for? Yeah. I don't necessarily think that's a great way to look at it, but... I always thought it would be cool if they were like crypto terrorists or whatever they would be in that situation, but like if they... Hackers or something, if they hacked social security records or identification records, and then rather than using them for a profit motive, like to steal people's identities and take money or take their retirements or whatever, if they just leaked everything or made it indecipherable like to the point where like they were able to like spam the records with enough on everyone so that no one was a criminal but but also no one was like totally legal like just make it not matter somehow and like what that would do i thought it would be a cool thing to probably write about i guess you'd have to sort of like in uh what fight club when they're trying to do with all the credit cards or oh, something. yeah yeah something akin to that yeah it'd be interesting to see um while we're speaking <clears throat> well, while we're speaking on FBI tree. files and all that shit, um, did we lose, oh, did, we lose oh. did things slow down for anyone else, or is it just me? Uh, uh, we thought you dropped. Dropped. We can't see you. Mike, did you just see uh, Sterling Street? No, podcast? I'm trying to, trying to pull it up now. I like it a lot. <laughs> what's, what's today? The third? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's pretty good. Free to share. Okay. Um, yeah. So, did you guys hear about uh, Grimes? Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a communist now. It's wild. Yeah. Well, she also had a thing saying like how it was a fucking, literally just a stunt, a trolling stunt. Where's that at? Yeah, she posted on like Instagram some fucking dumb shit. Oh yeah, she was like, I was really stressed when paparazzi wouldn't stop following me around this week. But then I realized it was an opportunity to troll. I swear this headline, oh my god, what the fuck, haha, I'm dead. Full disclosure, I'm still living with Elon, and I'm not a communist, although there are some very smart ideas in this book. But personally, I'm more interested in radical, decentralized UBI that I think would potentially be achieved through crypto and gaming, but I haven't ironed those ideas out yet to explain. Regardless, my opinions on politics are difficult to describe because the political system that inspires me the most has not yet been implemented. Wow. Just your dumbass. Yeah. That was a sentence. Well, those were definitely yeah, words. A sentence. Yeah. Don't even know where to start on that. Jesus fucking Christ. Implemented through crypto and so incoherent. Yeah, I want my politics shaped by gaming. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. It's like fucking you have what? not spent enough time in Call of Duty multiplayer. Like, <laughs> to think that gaming should be a crucial factor in forming politics, but okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm an yeah, anarchist, I but most of those guys straight to the gulag. <laughs> right? Not good people. I don't want them shaping anything. I played on Fox Live once on a friend's thing, and it was upsetting to hear. Yeah. Part of the reason I'm, uh, I, I consider myself an anarchist, or I try and follow those kinds of principles is because I think about how often I'm quick to go to the fucking gulag with that. Oh, fuck that gulag. And I'm like, you know what? See, maybe I shouldn't be making those decisions. 
No, no, no. Yeah. that means you're on the right track, dude. No, that's yeah. you're taking the wrong message from that, bud. <laughs> yeah. We can all be a little um, gulag happy at times. Embrace the, the dictatorship of the proletariat is not the proletariat being super nice to capitalists. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not looking to be nice per se. While we're while we were while we were on the topic of FBI files and stuff, um, I do think it's worth mentioning, like Michael Parenti's kind of discussion about Walter Ruther. One of the things he mentioned about writing that article was that they had a bunch of FBI files and stuff on Walter Ruther, um, and this was like 26 years or something after his death. And he mentioned that there was a whole bunch of still super redacted stuff. And I feel like people probably smarter than myself are still asking for this kind of documentation. But I thought like, I don't know, it's been it's been another, I think, 26 years since then. I'm like, if we asked for that kind of uh, documentation. We might actually be able to get a little bit more, um, perhaps with less redactions. So I don't know. I'm thinking about possibly trying to do like a I don't know if it's if it's necessarily a FOIA request or what, but um and you know i don't want this on the air because i'm will probably not follow through with it but <laughs> fair enough <laughs> i mean i was I'm, gonna say how hard is that to do like is it just the document you fill out or you gotta like raise funds or what like so it's it. so it's um it's it's weird um it, it's you, there's a few different ways to do it um i think the easiest is to like write up your request in like a pdf kind of format and like you ask for these certain things, whatever. Um, and then you would send that to the FOIA officer for that um, agency. But um, there's a whole bunch of agencies that use like one interconnected online portal, which uh, does not work on your phone. Fun fact. Um, <laughs> I have to do that from a, a laptop or something. Um, so you can attach, I, like I did my first FOIA request for the EPA. We'll see if I actually get anything on it. But um, I did learn how to do it through that. Um, and so you do kind of just like fill out a pretty basic document that's like, hey, I'm asking for documents from XYZ. So like it might be emails or written documents and like you try and get specific with like names, dates, and like what you want searched. Uh, and then you kind of put in, there's some templates you can find with the, some of the legal mumbo jumbo that you're just like, Oh, and you know, you can't withhold documents for X, Y, Z reason. If, if there's a concern of privacy or whatever, you can redact documents instead of not sharing the documents as a whole language like that. And then you kind of just explain why you think it's in the public interest to have that information out. So, um, it's worth learning how to do. It's it's interesting. So I may do some more FOIA kind of stuff. Um, not that I'm like a I'm not a journalist or anything though. So I'm kind of just some like random idiot asking for stuff. So no man, you this can use the podcast as an excuse. It would make for good material. I mean, that's what I do. I I, I put for co- cars and comrades podcast. I'm like I am part of the media. So yeah, <laughs> you're on a watch list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I'm not a journalist, but bear in mind that like you're already doing more research on this than like actual quote unquote journalists have done. So yeah. like I understand what you're saying, but give yourself some fucking credit too because you're doing some legwork. I mean, not that much legwork, but like a little bit, a little bit. And so anyway, uh, uh, 
I may I may do some I may do some kind of request or whatever to get um, documentation for Walter Ruther's death because I don't know Michael Parenti tried to get it 26 years ago and they got something just it wasn't um, it was a lot more redacted so who knows it's been another 26 years I don't know maybe they'll give us less redacted shit and I'm just some nobody so they might be more willing to give me stuff I don't know so who knows but they did reference it and I, it got me thinking I was like I should do a request on that yeah, we'll see. It, there's like a fee that goes with it. It can usually be like up to a few hundred dollars. Yeah, it, it depends on what you're asking for. Um, I they'll they'll usually come back to you and say like, hey, it's going to cost you this much or whatever. And from there, you can kind of like you can work it out a little bit. So you can ask for a fee waiver, which is kind of hard to get if you're not like the New York Times or some shit like which I am not. Um, but because he's doing actual journalism. Yeah, those motherfuckers should definitely have to pay a fee. Uh, you would think. Um, but a lot of it, like, it, it'll depend. So, like, they'll come back and be like, oh, hey, printing all this stuff will cost, you know, uh, $200 and everything. And you just be like, oh, you can send that electronically. I don't need shit printed. And they might be like, oh, well, okay, it'll cost $35 or something. Usually the fees are pretty, like, they're between, like, 20 to $50. Bucks. It's, it's not supposed to be um, bad. Um, but it can be really expensive. It just, it depends um, yeah. on a lot of different things. So sometimes they're going to fuck with you in, with that. And sometimes they won't. Um, if you can be clever about what you're asking for and why you might not come off as adversarial. And I mean, not that that's supposed to make a difference, but like it makes a difference. So mm. like from my request from the EPA is, largely on the side of the EPA. Um, so I'm looking for information that is like, hopefully um, pro EPA. So like, there's a good chance I'll get it because without too much fucking around, but we'll see. But it's, it's worth learning how to do. Um, I've got to, uh, and we haven't talked about it uh, on our podcast yet, but I, I've got to start, like, I got to look into doing FOIA requests for like Pete Buttigieg and stuff. Cause like he's the secretary of transportation and shit. I'm like <laughs> very yeah. much in our purview. I should, I should FOIA some stuff from him. I just don't know what to ask for yet. So if y'all think of anything, let me know. I, I will. FOIA Tom Cotton's uh, military records. What? <laughs> Senator Tom Cotton for yeah. his uh, military records. I hmm, that's not a bad idea. Also, uh, I remember that one picture with him where he's like posed up in like a uh, pile of seized gold from Afghanistan. So gross. Wow. I didn't, uh, I didn't know about I that. I love the idea of a bunch of like shit posting leftist podcasters figuring out how to do FOIA requests and just getting fucked up and doing FOIA requests for shits and giggles. Yeah. <laughs> like, I genuinely love this fucking idea. There's a bunch of mistyped <laughs> fucking FOIA requests all half drunk. <laughs> Yes, I love it. Um, maybe at some point I'll, I'll 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 tell you guys all how like how to do it, or like what, or you can go get references for like how to how, what to pay attention to and like what the requirements are. I'll I'll send you some videos or something. It's it's worth learning how to do. Fuck yeah! yeah awesome. Well, I am good to go. I hope y'all are too. I've yeah, got really. I'm almost done with my first beer, and I've got my second beer set up here in my. Uh, insulated lunchbox with a cold pack and everything i'm ready to go so i'm on my uh third since we've started nice i'm not going to talk about the ones i had before 
in preparation for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, the pre I'm always I'm always torn between whether I should try and drink more or less. I'm trying to go with a little bit less this time just because I'm trying to like read and like remember stuff. Um <laughs> which Oh shit. Which apparently got to him because he gets cut off. (laughs) The feds got to him. Yeah. Oh, so here's how you do a FOIA (laughs) request. back to the turn Leftist podcast i'm mike he him and tonight i'm here with ward he him as well and our special guest tonight from the cars and comrades podcast we have connor bryant brandon and zach all he him pronouns as well how are you guys doing pretty good oh, wow pretty pretty good yeah, yeah it's real sausage here again tonight all he hims yeah that's true uh no but so i wanted to ask you connor did you get through all of the things that you had set aside for part one last week or are we still kind of no. in part one territory? <laughs> so we're kind of shifting here. So it did take a while to get through, which is fine. Um, I think we were setting the scene on the last episode kind of talking about the early life of Walter uh, and obviously Victor as well. Part one, I kind of had set through World War Two, but I think it makes sense. This episode, I'd like to keep in that pre World War Two period. Uh, and mm-hmm. talk about some of the major strikes and organizing tactics used by the UAW and Walter and Victor, and some of the political maneuvering within the union and the labor movement overall. Mm-hmm. So this will kind of be like a part two, and then I think there's probably going to be a part three, um, the post-World War II period. So I'm hoping you guys are okay with that. It, uh, but I got nothing but time. We can make as many parts as we want. I think... We'll probably get there more tonight because I'm not as drunk as I was last week. Last week, I kept stopping everything for random rants about whatever. Um, I don't even remember now. I still have to get back to the playback to listen to what I interrupted for so many goddamn times. But uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. I mean, I had a great yeah, time. It, was good. it just wasn't like the most productive uh, information heavy episode because we just kept going off on tangents. Not that that's a problem. I, it's a podcast. I was on fucking mushroom. Are you drinking? Fine <laughs> with me. I'm currently on mushroom. I think we were all just having a good time last week. And so, you know, hey, we have a very uh, tangent heavy podcast. So, yeah, we got information we plan to get through. But then there's a tangent and then another and then another. And it's like the inception of tangents. It's like, well, we're four tangents deep, you know, (laughs) tangents within tangents. Information that's good for an hour and a half long episode. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Well, I think uh, you're listening to the podcast for the uh, analysis, not so much the uh, detailed facts, which is why we're going to include the sources so that if you want that, you can get the kind of that unvarnished story, which is going to be way less in depth than kind of what we've got. But it'll give you a good idea of what we're talking about. Way more in depth, you mean? Well, I'm going pretty. So I'm I'm referencing a bunch of uh, documentaries and podcasts, but like mm-hmm. I'm try I've tried to put them all kind of together so like any one of them on their own is going to be severely lacking oh i got you okay cool um in a lot of that info and that's just that's the way it is it's so you're not going to get like that 
perfect linear hey this date this happened that date that happened hey look at this isn't this cool it's cool to see like the video from like the early 30s of all these strikes and stuff like they have video and you can talk hear from the people who were there Mm -hmm. um which i think is incredibly valuable and they're not gonna sit there and pontificate on it like we are for quite as long but so one of the main documentaries we use brothers on the line it's good I think it gets a lot of information out there in a very short period of time. But after, you know, when I watched it again and I found myself pausing it every two or three minutes to be, you know, as I'm watching it with my partner and I'd have to pause it and I'd be like, oh, this is the part where they skip over all of this information. Here's the part where they totally miss all of this. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's a good, quick, uh, quick and dirty kind of documentary. But there is a lot that they of detail that they don't include. It's, it's weird looking at Walter Rother through rose-colored glasses. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it was made, one of the producers or directors or someone was someone in the Ruther family, right? I forget um, what like, their name yeah, was. Yeah, they were very much involved. Um, yeah. Like, Victor was heavily involved with it and all that, so... You know, th- there was some rose-colored glasses. They also did kind of go through some of the criticism, but, like... They did not have a that. former drum member on there. They did. Right. It was uh, General Baker. So oh, I didn't even pay attention to the name. Okay, fuck, that's cool. Yep, yep. So I was like, oh shit, all right, that's, there he is. So, um, yeah, so they did include some of that, but, like, it was a very small uh, chunk. We'll, we'll get a little bit more into that, like, part three. Um, yeah. So... And they also, uh, they, they had some footage in there from the drum movie. What was it called? Um, Have You Heard the News or something? Finally Got the News, I think. Uh, I can never remember the name of that movie, but it's something like that, yeah. Right. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to that. I don't know if that'll be in part three, but uh, yeah, when we get to drum and all that, you know, that's a really interesting movie. I would recommend it. And it's, I believe it's free on Vimeo or something. Go back to our drum episode if you want to learn the actual name of that movie, because I'm sure we say it there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then, uh, so, yeah, last week was kind of set in the scene. I will do a brief recap and then we'll kind of get right back into it, starting with how everything was created and then the actual uh, organizing and strikes at the big three. Finally got the news of that documentary. Yep, there it is. So. We talked last week about kind of the beginning of the story and setting the scene for how shitty labor was back in the early 20th century. Um, So back when most industrial workers did not have union representation, you know, we learned that shit was bad. Um, You didn't just get like yelled at by a boss like you might get beat up by several thugs. So like if you weren't working fast enough, they would just beat your ass. Because that was somehow acceptable before we had unions. Cool. It's just capitalism in its most raw form. Super cool. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, the, this is the world that all the libertarians and the extreme right-wingers are trying to bring us back to. Is like where your boss can hire thugs and come to beat you up if you're not working fast enough. Or if you talk about unions or anything like that. Sounds like you just get a better job, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of you course. You get a better job at a place that doesn't beat people as often. Yeah, it's on you, bro. It's a you problem. Exactly. And, you know, at the time that was normal and workers did not have paid time off or any health care benefits. Like, they didn't give a fuck. There was none of that. Um, so, like, at the time, we'd, I think, already won the eight hour day, the 40 hour work week. We, we kind of had weekends, sort of, 
by this time, but like that didn't really factor in for most people uh, because these factories were still, they could just ignore it. Um, there was no real agreement and they were the only game in town a lot of times. Um, so okay, that's point out how true that still is as I long for the eight hour work day. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, even in, in a small sense, you know, we don't have nine to fives anymore. Everything's an eight to five. And that's just because the capitalists stole your one hour lunch. Yeah. They just took that from you. So, you know, they will always try and claw, claw it all back. So whatever gains we win, we've always got to be fighting. And of course, that's why we hope for revolution rather than reform. Or that's one of the reasons, at least, um, because we know they'll, they'll, they'll try and take every last bit of it back. You know, something you see is like, oh, it's ne- of course, it's a good thing that we don't have children working anymore. Right. Not to the rich. They are not happy about that still to this day. They don't view yeah. that as good. Yeah. Every time I start softening on any of my more like radical insurrectionary views, I just read three pages of labor history and I'm like, nope, burn it all down. Yeah. <laughs> and how many fast food places have signs out front that say now hiring 14 and 15 year olds? Yeah, right. More than I'm comfortable with. I reduce pay, of course. If you're 14, you get $8 an hour. If you're 15, you get nine. If you're, you know, an adult, you'll get 10 because that's, that's the way that it is now. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, we totally got away with child labor. We don't do that anymore. All right, yep. now, uh, anybody want to put bets on how long we start seeing now uh, accepting 14 and 15-year-olds, like, those signs in front of the military recruitment offices? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Boy, I don't think it's that far away, especially whenever they had uh, they added women to the draft. Did they actually do that to happen? Yes. Wow. Yikes. Modern world. We, we got rid of child like slavery and uh, like child soldiers and stuff by redefining what constitutes a child. I'm just thinking of uh, that scene in the end of uh, Starship Troopers where there's a little kid saying, I'm doing my part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would you like to know more? I mean, even if they're not in the military, we still have, you know, JROTC programs and all of those that are yep. basically just military indoctrination for youth until they can be enlisted. Yeah, totally normal. But if that yeah. was happening in another country, it's so dystopian and authoritarian. Oh, yeah. yeah. An old American exceptionalism. People would be fine with them tomorrow operating the drones like if they were like using Call of Duty controllers, they would be fine <laughs> with like 14, 15 year old kids doing that tomorrow. Dude, oh, they, yeah. uh, they swapped uh, Xbox controllers a long time ago for drone operators. Mm-hmm. They couldn't train drone pilots on like the actual hardware, so they fucking like implemented a revision kind of thing where they could hook up a fucking Xbox controller to the system because all the young recruits couldn't operate the actual system, but they could operate a fucking Xbox 360 controller, no problem. Right. Just sounds like the cornerstone of Grimes' political economy. Yeah. See. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe she's going. Maybe she's got something. Or maybe. <laughs> I mean, that's also the, basically the plot of that movie Toys, the Robin Williams movie from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that they were doing drone strikes in that movie. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, spoiler alert, but the uh, twist at the end is that um, they have all these children, like, basically playing video games, but they're murdering civilians in Afghanistan or something. Also, oh, Ender's, Robin game. Uh, Ender's Game. Yeah, I was going to say know, Ender's Basically game the well. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Robin Williams has been a long-time advocate for drone strikes. I don't know if you knew that. But... <laughs> Not so much lately. Not since 2014. <laughs> yeah, no. Jeez. Fuck. <laughs> Too soon? Sorry. No, I, I actually miss the guy terribly. I miss his uh, movies and his comedy, even. But, 
Yeah, man, uh, get over it. Sorry, I spoke out against Robin Williams like that. <laughs> All right, well, as long as this is not Papa Stalin, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyway, back, back to labor history. <laughs> what did you say? I missed it. Shit. We just get so derailed. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, we we know kind of just labor was was weak at the time. Um, shit was bad for workers. Uh, the union kind of cropped up to protect workers, and some of the union organizers wanted to have a broader vision of you know leading to revolution, uh, and some did not. Um, so there was you know obviously we have. You know, typical you know, socialists at the time, uh, and then there's communists as well, all organizing in these unions, and there's power struggles and this and that. But back in the days, things were bad for workers, and so there was kind of a just a natural need for workers to band together and improve their situation. This is also like the peak era for like CPUSA too, before they became like weird and revisionist and reformist. Mm. Yeah, and they come up in our story a little bit kind of tangentially but like the communist party of the usa did have a lot to do with the labor movement and the communists that were organizing largely with the cio unions so i did just want to um quickly kind of reiterate the sorts of questions that i mentioned in the last episode of like what i'm trying to consider because hopefully the next labor leaders are listening to this episode at some point (laughs) you know and i think there's just there are things to learn from this story and it's, you know, there's a lot to it. It's, it's pretty multifaceted. So again, I'm not making any hard answers on this, but I I think it's important to just like think about while we engage with the material. So just kind of things to think about are just how did union power rise in the first place? And then how did it later fall? And what can we learn from the strategy pursued by Walter Ruther or his opposition within the labor movement, uh, which would be more the communists. Um, how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system and build movements outside the centers of power? Uh, how should we think about making compromises and giving concessions in order to get gains for working people? How should we think about political education for union membership? Is it better to have those large unions or more radical members? Uh, what alternatives might exist to the kind of political engagement we saw from unions in the 20th century? Uh, how should we think about the very small pivotal moments throughout history that shaped the world as we know it? Uh, kind of examples for that are like the fact that the Batista regime in Cuba did not, you know, kill Fidel Castro on multiple occasions when they could have, you know, that that's like a small decision that really impacted the world. Batista, you fucked up. Well, exactly. And so there is a few moments uh, like that in this story when it comes to the companies that they are organizing against. There's cases where the right person happens to be in the right position of power to give a win to a union. This kind of stuff is something we have to like think about realistically um, because a lot of the labor movement in the U.S. is defined by luck, uh, unfortunately. Um, How should we think about the very real pressures placed on unions by the global capitalist system, since we know capital can move and workers cannot, uh, and that there is competition between different companies, whether they're union or not, uh, how should we consider these different pressures and how they might affect how unions should or could organize? Uh, And then, of course, lastly, how should we think about legality in future labor struggles? Uh, If the game is rigged by ruling class and lawmakers, can anything really be gained by playing by their rules? 
what alternatives might exist, uh, and how should we think about abandoning legality if, should we choose to do that in any sense. So sorry to sound pedantic, but I, I do want to just list these kinds of things up because they were things that I thought about while going through this story. Yeah, that's good. I liked it. That's, that's fine. I already forgot about half of them. Yeah, that's fine. You know, rewind if you, if you, if you uh, need to hear them again, but probably not. <laughs> So, um, Unfortunately, I can't rewind. We're doing this live. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't, but okay, we'll listeners can. <laughs> so okay, we know. shouldn't drink so much on the podcast. Nah, it's all good. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of get that, you know, Walter Ruther comes from uh, a socialist family around the turn of the century. His father was a socialist um, and he taught, you know, Walter, Victor and Roy and Ted and, uh, you know, all the Ruther kids learned from their socialist father so pretty early on they were you know at least socialists they were not communists although walter and victor did spend some time in soviet russia uh teaching uh workers in russia to make retired ford models um after henry ford sold all that equipment to russia so of course you know they spent their time traveling asia and whatnot like we talked about and they did spend some time in soviet russia where Walter did make a point of criticizing um, the inefficiencies he saw in the plants. So he was pretty anti-communist. Even when he was in Soviet Russia, he was anti-communist when he came back. He was anti-communist later after the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, Walter Ruther was very anti-communist. Um, yeah. So here's something. I wonder, like, I never actually knew the thing before this about uh, the about Ford selling all of the equipment and machinery to, to Russia. Do you think that if Henry Ford had known that they would use it to defeat the Nazis single-handedly, <laughs> that he would have reconsidered selling it to them? Yeah, yeah, he would not have sold that shit. Shout out to Henry Ford for helping us defeat the Nazis. <laughs> well, critical support for Henry Ford. I mean, he was uh, he was giving with one hand and taking away with the other. You know, yeah. I think it was it was Lenin, right, who said uh, the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we hang them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah, the last capitalist we hang will be the one who sold us the rope. Yep, that's that's it. That's the quote. So yeah, again, I think we talked about it last week, but Walter and Victor did. Uh, after Walter was fired uh, from Ford um, for, I think he was organizing on a campaign for the Socialist Party of America. So like their presidential campaign, they put up whoever. And Walter was like uh, organizing rallies for him and that got him fired. So then he and Victor took the opportunity to travel through Europe and Asia on bike. And, you know, they did that. They spent two years in Russia uh, where they were hired to teach workers in Russia, how to operate the machinery to make uh, the Model T that Henry Ford had sold them. So they came back to the States, I think it was 1932. uh, And that's really where it was after that time that they really started organizing with the UAW, which was uh, fledgling at the time. So kind of here's how the UAW gets created. Basically, the UAW was created in 1935 as part of the American Federation of Labor, uh, so the AFL. The first president was Francis J. Dillon, and he was president from 1935 to 1936. The union vice president at the time was Homer Martin. He'll become important later. And after the initial AFL-CIO split, the socialist Homer Martin was elected to be the second president of the UAW in 1936, and he was president until 1938. 
I think I've got somewhere in here, which let me check my notes. Yeah, so here's kind of, we went through it last week, but just to recap, at the AFL convention in 1935, John L. Lewis, who was the leader of the United Mine Workers at the time, created the committee for the for industrial organization within the AFL. So the first CIO was like a group within the AFL, which the AFL did not appreciate. And they expelled those unions who were with uh, John Lewis the next year. So that's where we get like our first president of the UAW is with the AFL. Right. Then after the split, his vice president, Homer Martin, is then elected to be president. And that's the UAW CIO. Right. So there there was that split, um, but it was initially created when John L. Lewis kind of created that organization within the AFL. So that's split number one. But don't worry, there'll be a a reconciliation between the two later. (laughs) Boo. Yeah, boo. I didn't do any in-depth. Uh, reading on Homer Martin and about uh, Walter Ruther's very specific uh, political beliefs. So we know that they were both socialists. Do we know anything about like their actual like theoretical stances on things or were they just like general like big picture socialists? So I can answer that. Walter and Victor Ruther were socialists. All right. That's what they called themselves. You know, in a lot of ways, especially later on, they would become more like social Democrats or Democratic Socialists, wherever you want to draw that fucking line. I don't care. They were more in that vein later on, especially earlier on. It seems as though they were maybe more, quote unquote, radical, but I don't think they were ever really pro like workers revolution and being anti-communist as they were. They were not looking at that model like communism wasn't their end goal, I don't think. Mm-hmm. which you know that's, that's sad it's something i almost don't understand they just wanted to rein it in a little bit seemingly yes now at the time they were called socialists it, back in the day when people didn't have the same kind of access to information that we have now like now we can have oh oh god i i can't even make fun of it but like you know what i'm talking about where there's like eight like oh here's my eight labels or whatever i'm a you know anti-revisionist anarcho-mutualist whatever the fuck you know man. yeah that wasn't quite as prevalent at the time because it really was just workers wanting worker power Mm-hmm. There was revolutionary types. There was not revolutionary types. There was plenty of literature out there, but a lot of people were pretty broad. And I think in a lot of ways, the more revolutionary folks were focused on organizing regular working people. And sometimes that meant meeting them where they're at, which, you know, is a thing we do today. Um, we see that all the time. Uh, so it's very normal, but they were considered socialists. Homer Martin was considered a socialist, although he was opposed him and Walter were on different sides of many fights. So uh, part of that was because Homer Martin was an interesting character, which we'll get into a little bit more later, but yeah, Walter and Victor were very anti-communist and at times like they fall for like these ridiculous tropes of communists. Like there's points at like, which like Walter will describe an instance, but when we get to it, I will tell you, this did not happen. So like he recounts this like situation at a convention where, oh, blah, 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 this happened. It's like, no, that didn't happen. 100% did not happen. Yeah. I am perfectly happy saying that despite, you know, I don't have evidence that it didn't happen. But like when I read it, you'll know, you'll be like, yeah, that didn't fucking happen. Um, mm-hmm. So 
he was trying to rein in the system, like you said, and he was a little bit more conservative in, in that respect. So it's, it's kind of hard to put a exactly pin where his ideology was, but he, you know, general socialist, anti-communist, somewhere in that vein, basically. I don't follow that ideology at all. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't an anarchist. He wasn't a communist. He was something in between. Just be a communist. They're going to call you a communist anyway. So just be one. Big facts. Yeah. Yeah. Which Mike, you, Mike, you're not paying attention. He went to Russia and he didn't like it. So communism's bad. <laughs> Irrefutable. He got cold. Yeah. He got I cold one time. I didn't like it. So it doesn't work. Yeah. He personally blamed communism for Siberia being cold. <laughs> yeah. Which we discussed being probably a little bit embellished. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, and I think um, it was in the interview, which again, we'll, we'll probably link with Michael Parenti and David Emery, where uh, David Emery points out that, hey, you can you can criticize communism um, or communist uh, movements and it will not get you any love from anyone who thinks you're reasonable. They're still going to fucking hate you. Um, and that's that's the truth. Be a communist because separating yourself from it at times is like oh well, i don't want that it's like well they fucking hate you anyway they hate bernie sanders they call joe biden a fucking marxist wait yeah. what is the point wait you cannot appease those fucking people so you know stop being scared and like actually look into the history like be unafraid when you're looking at political ideologies because they're calling you a communist either way yeah Have but of course seen, uh, joe biden's entry in conservapedia Oh, I, I, have, I bet it's a good one. It's oh. incredible. Yeah. Political beliefs, socialism with Chinese characteristics, communism, <laughs> Xi Jinping thought, Marxism, fascism, white supremacy. Aside from the fascism and white supremacism, like based as fuck. But like, <laughs> like if only it was true though. Yeah. That's the Joe Biden. Well, I was I was gonna say that's the Joe Biden I'd vote for, but yeah, the fascism on white supremacy really threw me off the trail, but yeah. Do better, Joe. Well, again, we're talking about people who don't know what any of those fucking terms mean at all. So, you know. Yeah. If only liberals were as cool as conservatives thought they were. Right. 100%. By the way, the the conservapedia entry for E equals MC squared is hilarious. Oh, my God. I'll let you all uh, read that at your own time, but it's it's pretty (laughs) insane. (laughs) I I can't. Why would that even be on there? Like, that's not... I don't know it's, because I mean, because uh, was a socialist, so obviously yeah, it has to be right. fake news. And Equals MC squared is fake news. Jewish too. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't uh, go out and say that, but there's a few dog whistles in there. I like how after the intro, the first thing is description for the layman. <laughs> yeah. So listen while we tell you some bullshit. <laughs> they referenced Twilight. Oh God, Twilight Zone. Fuck off. No. All right, I'm closing this. <laughs> That's from the E equals MC squared Conservapedia. Yeah, yeah. Oh God. All right. Yeah, listeners, go check. Pause the pause this episode. Go check that out real quick, and then come yes, back to us. Wow. Oh, it's the best shit I've seen. I the, I do like the the Joseph Biden one because it's like he began occupying the White House. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's like the first line. Occupy White House would have been so much cooler than Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs>
All right, so anyway, back to kind of the early beginnings of the UAW and the CIO. The third president of the UAW was a man named R.J. Thomas. His full name was Roland J. as in J-A-Y, Thomas. And he was elected after Homer Martin was, uh, and I put this in quotes, ousted. That will become important. Uh, Apparently, Homer kind of went off the rails a little bit, um, and... UAW workers tell stories of how like near the end he'd be in the union hall where people are like trying to eat their lunch and shit and like he's walking on the fucking tables preaching the gospel for reference he was a former preacher he was so he was a socialist preacher who got involved in the labor movement and so yeah he would just like he was walking on tables bothering people with the gospel um and he was apparently by all accounts super paranoid about fucking everything and Take it with a grain of salt because uh, it is coming from Walter, but uh, Walter did allege that he, Homer had showed him at least once a briefcase with $50,000 in cash in it, uh, which he believed came from either the mob or perhaps Harry Bennett, which we have not introduced in depth yet, but uh, Harry Bennett was uh, Henry Ford's most beloved thug. um, And yeah, he was a real piece of shit. Like, Wow. Incredible. So for Homer to potentially be taking any kind of money from Harry Bennett uh, is like literally the worst thing. That is just 100%. That is the biggest betrayal of the workers that is imaginable. Like nothing Walter ever did could compare to that. So we don't know exactly where this money came from. It's a very small part of the story, but Homer Martin definitely went off the rails and definitely was like, not doing the union any favors so he was not Mm -hmm. uh president for very long but yeah he did some shit and he does some shit again later after being uh ousted as well so more to come (laughs) the the uh u.s labor history is marred in leftist infighting just everywhere it's constant and this story is um gonna involve quite a bit and this is one of those cases so anyway, uh, R.J. Thomas was uh, elected after Homer Martin was, you know, uh, elected out. And he served as president from 1938 to 1946. During this period, the UAW developed into a dynamic and stable union. He lost the presidency by a handful of votes to Walter Ruther in 1946, uh, but he was elected the first vice president uh, under Walter. Within the UAW, Thomas had led a CPUSA-affiliated faction that supported the Soviet Union, while Ruther led a liberal and progressive faction that opposed the Soviet Union. So it's a bit of a split within the UAW at that time. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into it later, but uh, these are kind of the two sides. There's like a, a progressive and a communist side, and R.J. Thomas, the third president, was uh, leading the communists. During the World War II and until 1946 in the UAW, the communists had outnumbered the liberals uh, in the executive committee. So, but by 19, yeah, so they had pretty tremendous power in the UAW at this time. And arguably the UAW was doing great at this time. I was going to say, I'm going to guess that's when they made their most gains and made the most progress and everything. Yes, uh, it's seemingly. Now, again, we're here to kind of criticize Walter a little bit, but Walter did do some very good shit, too. And he was not a fucking idiot. Um, So he did care about working people quite a bit. And he did come up with some really good actual on the ground strategies. But at this time, the UAW was doing very, very well. And a lot of that is like 
RJ Thomas was the president, but the UAW was doing very well in part in Detroit, almost entirely because of uh, Walter and Victor Rue there and their strategies for organizing at this time. Nice. Um, yep. So uh, anyway, at this time, the communists outnumbered the liberals in the executive committee. But by 1947, as U.S. and Soviet tensions grew, uh, workers support of the communists waned a little bit. Um, and this is kind of important to keep in mind. Uh, a series of bitter internal disputes led to Thomas losing the office of the vice presidency in the following year's election, uh, with most of the leading communists replaced in what became known as the biggest setback of all time for communists in the American labor movement. So this was this was a loss. Um, part of it was, uh, you know, of course, from growing Soviet tensions and the U.S. propaganda machine. And this is to their credit. I mean, this was before that propaganda machine had really been sophisticated um it wasn't until after world war ii where they really had to contend with something that was more like what we see today so that's that was a new challenge at the time um it's a challenge we still have today obviously but of course with social media and stuff we're kind of seeing that breakthrough a little bit uh and i think we have to kind of take lessons from this and learn how do we go forward how do we avoid that propaganda machine how do we kind of combat that kind of stuff because we're seeing it happen today with like china um quite a bit so again these are those lessons we kind of have to be thinking about so let's get into the kind of what i'm calling the rise of the uaw uh before world war ii and so this is where kind of things really start to pop off this is where that organizing actually comes into play and here's the kind of strategies pursued by uh, Walter and Victor, who, again, by no accounts were they dumb in their organizing. They were some of the best. So on March 7th, 1932, there was a march on the River Rouge Ford plant. OK, so this is really the first of the big three, uh, which are Ford, GM and Chrysler. This march was against the largest plant, I think, at the time in Detroit. And it was Dearborn, Michigan, but that's right by Detroit. And it was situated on the, I think, whatever, the Rouge River or whatever. That's why the plant was named that. It was on that river. It is what it is. For this, uh, I think it's important now, uh, before we get too into this particular strike, we're going to introduce kind of our, I can't remember if this is our first or our second villain, but uh, this is one of the main villains in this entire story, and that is Henry Bennett. So let's talk about our, oh, excuse me, Harry Bennett. Yeah. I'm stupid. Man, he's not a, he's not worthwhile getting his name right. Fuck him. Yeah, fuck this guy for real. Fuck I'm this not super guy. acquainted with this guy, so I'm I'm going to learn something. Oh, yes you will. Now, I can say that Harry Bennett was a real piece of shit, but he was also a very interesting piece of shit. Um this guy was fucking bonkers. Like, I'm going through the story, I'm like, yo, how much of this is true? Come on. Really? Mm -hmm. Fucking Tigers and lions? What? Yeah. Why are tigers and lions in this story? That's fucking crazy. But they are in this story. I Harry, if it was him or or Henry Ford in their one of their mansions had a uh, like a little special house built for ducks to hang out. Oh yeah, that was Harry Bennett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Harry Bennett had a special little house built for ducks on his property. So cool guy. Yeah, like a fucking Peabody hotel. Very normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the fucking gall of oppressing workers so that you have money to build a fucking house on your property for ducks. What, bro? It's my yeah. duck house. I'd be jealous. Just work harder. Yeah, I, I think also 
he would do he would do target practice in his office. Okay, you're get come on, you're taking up you're 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 taking up all the right. story bits here. But yes, <laughs> all <crazy>. true. <laughs> yes. All of that it. That last part was actually pretty sick and I support that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I could shoot my gun in my office. That'd be sweet. Yeah. Okay, but your job was not specifically to intimidate workers, and Harry's job was exactly that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it takes a darker turn then. Yeah, it like sounded cool at first, but yeah, <laughs> fuck. They're capitalists. It's never cool. It's just never yeah. cool. So, uh, Harry Herbert Bennett uh, was born January seventeenth, eighteen ninety-two, and he lived to January fourth, nineteen seventy-nine. He was a boxer, a Navy sailor, and a businessman. I mean, he was. Um, from the 1920s through 1945, he worked for Ford Motor Company and was best known as the head of Ford's quote-unquote service department, um, which, Christ. yeah, the service department, which has a perfectly nice sounding name, was actually uh, Harry Bennett and his thugs working directly for Henry Ford, and their job was, one, stop any unionization talk, two, to beat the shit out of workers who did not work fast enough, um, and I mean, yeah, that's it. That, that, that's where that's their two points in their, you know, mission statement was stop unions, beat workers. Mm-hmm. Hey, what does the uh, service department do? Oh, they service us with ass whippings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is where the stories come from, like workers who would say, like, literally, they would one choose not to use the bathroom when they had to um, because board service department employees would watch them and like make sure they're not taking too long. And you know, if they had to like, if they had to do a number two, um, and the Ford Service Department guys decided that it was taking too long, they would literally go in, pull them off the toilet, and put them back to work. That happened. Nice. That Jesus. again. Want to remind people: this is the world that libertarians. This is what they're selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming soon to a Amazon Center near you. <laughs> yeah, Amazon Center or Amazon Town. Yeah. <laughs> um, Capitalist innovation is re-implementing 100-year-old ideas. 100%. 100%. That's all it is. Told you, they're just trying to claw back every gain that workers have made. So, he was uh, head of Ford's service department, the company's internal security agency. He gained tremendous trust from Ford as the family bodyguard as well. Uh, so, this is kind of where he got very, very close to... Uh, Henry Ford himself, and the two were like inseparable. They were bros. Yeah, and they arguably had a closer, potentially closer relationship than Ford had to his own son, Edsel Ford. Yeah, which sounds pretty capitalist. Oh, 100%. So, kidnapping was always a major concern for the wealthy in those days, which, you know, was kind of true. That sounds fun. That fucking rules. I said, let's bring that back. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. For the sake of anyone listening, that was parody and satire. Project modernity, embrace tradition. <laughs> like, uh, I can totally see myself taking that up as a hobby. Kidnapping as a hobby. <laughs> like, maybe like a vocation. Okay? It's a it's vocation. more serious than a hobby. Like, you make money doing it, but it's one of those situations where it's like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not doing it for a profit incentive. Like, you know, I'm not going to be asking for ransom. 
You know, <laughs> you're just like trying to get rid of some debunked. <laughs> okay, I misunderstood what your what your end goal was there. Okay, mm-hmm. so like you're just like keeping them in the basement, or is this an execution people. scenario? What are we doing here? I'll figure that out after I take him. All right, <laughs> I like your attitude. Anyway, okay, so kidnapping was obviously a major concern. Um, Harry was responsible for protecting the Ford family. Uh, there was at least one kidnapping attempt on Edsel Ford, which was Henry Ford's son. Uh, which was foiled by Harry. Uh, several of the alleged kidnappers were mysteriously never heard from again. Uh, I think it was mm. four. So it was like nine people involved. Five of them went to the police. Four of them they never heard from again. So they're dead, pretty sure. They were killed. Well, this was like 100 years ago, so they're probably dead. Well, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Brandon, for the clarification. <laughs> uh, while working they for the suicide, they shot themselves in the back of the head twice. Yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Gary Webb vibes. Yeah, I was going to be like, nah, I'm not going to make that joke. <laughs> so, while working for Henry Ford, Bennett's union-busting tactics made him an enemy of the United Auto Workers trade union, obviously. He gained infamy for his involvement in activities such as the Battle of the Overpass, uh, a 1937 incident that we'll talk about later, so don't worry about it. Um, Harry Bennett got the job working for Ford after a street fight in 1916. So Harry was only 5'6", um, but he was a boxer in very good shape. He was spared from jail by a newspaper columnist and acquaintance of Henry Ford, who witnessed the fight and told police Harry wasn't at fault. At the time, the columnist was on his way to meet Ford and took Harry with him to introduce them. Uh, Ford had asked Harry if he could shoot, and Harry answered yes. That was apparently a job interview, and Harry got the job in security. So, look. Let's think about what that job interview was and like how fucked mm-hmm. up. Yeah, that's can you shoot? That's it. So you just yeah. got into a street fight and got away with it. Like, hey, Henry, I found this guy. He just beat up this dude. I think he'd be great for you. Yeah. Can you, and, can you shoot it? Workers? OK, cool. Yeah, you're hired. Well, and of course, <laughs> I, I think it's noteworthy um, that, you know, this is like some media fucking asshole who's just like friends with the richest man in the world at the time. And it's like, hmm. I wonder if his opinions were fucking worthwhile to have in, in that newspaper. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so that got him the job. And uh, yeah, he was close with Henry ever since. Um, he had various residences in Michigan, including the Great Lakes Landmark and Ford Motor Company built Pagoda House, the Asian themed boathouse on Gross Isle. Um, yeah. I think that's how you say it, Michigan, uh, and Bennett's Lodge near Farwell, a log cabin style house in East Tawas, and Bennett's Castle. And Bennett's Castle was an estate located on the Huron River in Ypsilanti, where he kept pet lions and tigers. It had 22 rooms and was outfitted with secret passages and hidden rooms, including a hidden bathhouse. So this was like a real life Scooby Doo mansion, basically. So, like, there's secret passages. There's, you know, the, like, I'm pretty sure it's got, like, the fireplace that turns. And it was owned by a real-life ghoul. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was insane shit. Like, this was all built specifically for Harry. And, like, one of the things that it had was, like, the stairs. I, I think it was, like, in the back or something. But, like, the stairs were built in such a way that they were, like, slightly different heights. So, like, they weren't a consistent height. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And this is just, like, to prevent people from 
if they're pursuing him or something like they would not be prepared for that and they might trip and fall uh, again scooby-doo level shit i mean it's like it's like if the home alone kid made a fucking mansion that's where this guy lived mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. i think that was actually like a old-timey medieval castle technique as well yeah like mm. defense from invaders Hmm. But this, yeah, this sounds like Scooby Doo Home Alone meets like Winchester House Mansion. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like it's got all of that. It's also got it's patrolled by like a bunch of board security people. It's patrolled by lions, I think. Yeah, it was lions in the secret passages and stuff. Yeah, and sometimes he would just like let the lions out of their cages to roam the passages in case someone decides to come by at the wrong time. That's the first just, You gotta use tigers. Lions are no good. Tigers work. I think he had tigers too. I, I can't remember specifically, but he had big cats, we'll say. This asshole probably had ligers. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I'm just really upset that he didn't complete it and have bears. I mean, that would be the Michigan type animal to have. Yeah, lions and tigers and bears? Oh my. <laughs> oh my. Wait, no. That's Chicago, right? Chicago bears? Detroit <laughs> lions. Yeah, never mind. There's Detroit Lions. Is that a real thing? That's a, yeah, it's a baseball team, right? Detroit Lions. I think it's a I football team. I think it's a football team, and I'm not even a sports guy. Which I am now 100 percent convinced that they got their name from Harry Bennett having lions. That's what I was gonna like. That's, yeah, that's it now. That's that's yeah. canon. So Detroit Lions is the football, and uh, Tigers is baseball. Uh, there you go. Yeah, they're wow. almost. I'm going to go ahead and assume that it's not a coincidence they have both of those in their city and this asshole who had was both in of those in his house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, in my opinion, that's where that's coming from. I mean, it's more plausible than any other explanation. Yo, what if we actually got the order of this mixed up and like those teams already existed? So when you were reading that like he had lions and tigers in his house, it was actually just a bunch of like football and baseball players roaming yeah. the halls. Uh, well, they do. They would let them out of their cages. <laughs> I suppose they had the money. Like they could have bought baseball players and like professional sports players. They they clearly had the fucking money. If they got castle money, they got it. Now, so Bennett Castle and Harry's hideout were on one property, um, and Harry's hideout was an above ground bunker made to look like a log cabin. So that was like in like the backyard, basically. And it had a secret attic with 360 degree gun posts <laughs> up at the top. Yeah, so like he could fire on people who were coming to get him. Uh, and Bennett's Lodge in Farwell, Michigan had a moat, a literal moat. Ooh. Now, despite these absurd security measures, apparently a mobster upset with Harry for foiling a kidnapping grift he had snuck onto the property, forced his way into the castle, and surprised Harry in his living room and shot him in the stomach. Jesus. So, nice. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, not nice. He should learn to shoot better because Harry <laughs> Bennett lived to see another day. So, we need to train comrades. Yeah. For real. Like, you should learn how to shoot properly because uh, this story is full of like failed assassination attempts. The whole story. Just everything they learn to shoot people my god it reminds me of the joke what do you do if you see a cop with half his head blown off stop <laughs> laughing and keep shooting <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so like <laughs> he lived and the cops, by the way, later got this fucking mobster and like they just killed him. no trial, no nothing. They just they killed him and they sent Harry a picture of it demonstrating their who they were really working for, of course. Um, their class alliance. Yeah. They Michael Reinhold him. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, back at this time, and this becomes, you know, relevant in some of the other stories we've, we've got, but uh, the police were like, they were a private security force for the rich, more so than they are today. Like, today they are, but, like, it's more institutional. Like, it's just through how the institution is set up that it works today. Back then they were literally just paid. They were just, that's, that's where their allegiances were. Um, And it was a lot more visible than it is today, which how people grew up in like the years following this, like boomers and shit. I don't understand how they ever had respect for police because they lived through the time when like the police were literally just paid fucking thugs for the rich. Mm-hmm. more so than they are today again i cannot make that more clear they still are that but like somehow they were worse it's crazy so i don't understand how like there is even cop worship in this country because like their origins i mean were they were just so fucking blatant about it so yeah despite all the security stuff it wasn't really that effective apparently and uh the mob is another kind of villain in our story they kind of go after everybody unfortunately they're involved top to bottom. They are trying to get, you know, sorts of lucrative business within the, within the plants among workers. So they were running like gambling operations and they were trying to like at one point sell fruit in the Ford plant. Um, <laughs> All right. So I think one of the things that they did was like they did some kind of threat against Henry Ford. I think this might have actually had to do with the initial kidnapping attempt of Ed- Edsel Ford. but. The mob had some kind of kidnapping effort. It got foiled, whatever. And before long, the mob kind of got like a contract through one of their legal subsidiaries or whatever. They were given a contract to sell all the fruit in the River Rouge plant. Apparently that was lucrative. Uh, You know, that was one of their quote unquote legit businesses. So, yeah, the mob was involved top to bottom. They were kind of going for the capitalists and they were going against the labor unions. Uh, one of the things they did with labor uh, unions was that the mob would like get involved in the union and then they would try and skim like uh, membership dues. And mm-hmm. they would also, on the other hand, sell non-strike agreements to companies. So like they would guarantee that like if you pay up for protection, uh, we'll make sure that there's no strike here. Mm-hmm. So this is, of course, obviously undercutting the union. They were undercutting the companies. They had no allegiances besides making money for themselves. But I think there's something important to learn from kind of the mob here in that the mob got their way, right? And they got their way from the companies. They got their way from the unions. They were always being fought, but like, and granted, I'm not saying the mob is good guys. They're a villain in our story. However, Can we learn something from that in future labor struggles? Just a thought that I'm throwing out there. They got shit done. They got their way. What can we learn from that? I, you know, I don't know. This you just the lesson is organized like Kaiser Soze. You just have to be willing to do what the other guy isn't. Pretty much. Just go watch the Usual Suspects, or else you won't get that joke. Oh, I get the joke. It's bleak. (laughs) I did not. So. I'm just taking you at your word that, you know, 
be willing to do what the other guy isn't. That's okay. I, I feel like we really need to let you know how psychotic that joke is. Oh, Souza is like, I guess, who's like, who's another character in a movie or TV show or something that's that sadistic and evil, but also like Machiavellian? I guess, like, is it Walter White from Breaking Bad, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I think that's a decent comparison. Uh, somebody threatened to kill Kaiser Soze's family, so he killed his family to prove that they couldn't get one up on him. <laughs> yeah, whoa, whoa, yeah. okay. My God. Yes. So be willing to do what, what you have to do to get the job done. Okay. Short of that, apparently. <laughs> Why do you think I don't have a family? <laughs> Getting shit done. Okay. So that's our introduction for uh, our first, you know, major villain, Harry Bennett. Um, again, he's the guy who's going to be a problem at Ford. The main problem. So back to like the Ford Hunger March, which again is back in March of 1932. Despite the brutality of the service department, there was a saying in the plant among workers, uh, a saying I totally love, $6 a day plus parts. So the the idea being this is kind of, they're paid their wage, and of course they're stealing equipment, parts, whatever, um, to make a buck on the side, which workers should not have to fucking do obviously, but it's kind of a funny little thing that people were doing to get by. This is kind of like how things work at like the junkyard, right? The junkyard is where you go to get used parts off these cars and everybody knows your pockets are full. Nobody's checking, but like everyone it's factored in the price of the parts because you're leaving your toolbox is going to have the extra parts you need, whatever you can fit. People are walking away out of the junkyard with, and that's just accepted and normal. Ford didn't like it as much, but hey, whatever. There was only so much I'm they could do. I never once thought to do that at the Upolit now. that I've been to Upolit like all of two times, and I'm pissed I didn't think to just grab other things. Yep. I've Public never survey. paid for a junkyard sensor in my life. <laughs> Not once. Yeah. If it fits in a pocket, that's where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? I had four pounds of fuses in my pocket when I got here. <laughs> <laughs> I bought those from home. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll at least take uh, hardware, put that in my toolbox or whatever, you know? Yeah, or whenever you're, yeah. so like, let's say you need a part for whatever your car is. So if, if you're a listener and you're going to the junkyard, got to think, you know, when you go, let's say you're getting an alternator or a starter, whatever the fuck you're getting, doesn't matter. Take all the sensors you can. Everyone on the engine, your cam sensors, your crankshaft position sensor, uh, all of that shit, take it. Take it because it fits in a pocket and that's shit that goes bad. Um, pretty regularly and the oem sensors are the best quality yeah going to the parts store it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes so get those oem sensors clean them up put them in the new one when you need it so good to have those extra parts i think i've told the other guys on on cars and comrades this but expert level junkyard hack if you're not sure how to do something find a junkyard that has the car that you're working on practice on the car in the junkyard so if you break something or it doesn't go the way that you expect it to you learned a lesson on a car that isn't yours <laughs> these are real pro tips to be honest yeah, yeah. that's that's my best advice that i've ever given fucking anyone wanting to work <laughs> on their own car find a junkyard car that you can practice on also if you're in a junkyard fucking look around dude people leave shit on a brand new set of brake rotors in the junkyard like last month and they charged me seven dollars a piece for them and i flipped them for a hundred bucks they weren't for my car but like fuck it someone needs them you know right 
a guy in my van club found a huge box of vintage porn. Okay. <laughs> That's priceless. That's a weird thing to find in a junkyard, but okay. <laughs> it was in someone's van. <laughs> of course it was in a van. It wasn't going to be in any other type of car. No. It was definitely going to be in a van. I've, I've heard some stories of people finding things in police auction cars that the cops missed. Gonna <laughs> so you might find someone's stash or a big wad of cash or something. Dude, now I want to go buy like police auction cars and just like hope I end up with like a kilo of coke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You might not want to find that. Someone might be looking for it. Well, they don't know where it was. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So back in the plant. That's how workers were seeing their job. They knew they weren't getting paid enough. So one of the ways they got back was, you know, stealing parts and tools and shit. And, you know, good for them. Of course, this was risky with the Ford Service Department that we've described already. But, you know, hey, workers did what they could to get by. After the market crash of 1929, by 1932, 80% of the industry had stopped producing. Uh, Ford had laid off two thirds of its workforce and the UAW and communist labor organizers planned a march. So this is like, you know, the depths of the, of the depression and the auto industry is, which was at the time had recently become like the biggest, you know, major industry in the U S. So it employed a ton of fucking people because it was pretty labor intensive. Um, and they had laid off a shitload of people. People were fucking starving and they knew that the automakers had the ability to cough up more jobs, more money, and the economy fucking needed it. Uh, of course, you don't hear this kind of stuff. What you hear, you know, today is the uh, that classic old story of, oh, Henry Ford gave his workers a raise so that they could afford to buy the cars that they were making. How wonderful. Right. What a guy. Chill move. Yeah. When the reality is couldn't be further from the fucking truth. So they planned to march. Workers demanded jobs for laid off workers, the right to unionize medical aid in the plants because people got fucking hurt all the time, better pay and an end to racial discrimination and hiring. Now, mind you, this is 1932 and like that, that's an important thing to be asking for at this time. Again, this is like Detroit, so it's not like the South per se, but like this is a big deal. So to now, make sure I'm keeping things straight, um, this was the union doing this when they still had a lot of uh, communist party leaders. Yes. yes. Okay, so that this, tracks then because, because CPUSA was doing killer fucking work in the thirties, man. Like their organizing efforts from everything I've read were second to none. Yeah. And that, so that was like this particular strike, which was not um, exactly successful. I don't believe, but like this was a major precursor to what was like to come later. And yeah, they had real solid fucking demands. So they had all these demands and 4,000 people marched from Detroit to the Dearborn River Rouge plant. Um, so it was a pretty sizable fucking march. Marchers were sprayed with freezing water on their way to the plant. And it was, you know, it was very cold. I don't remember the temperature that they said, but, you know, it was freezing water. So this was like it was in the I think the teens, to the 20s on this day. Ooh. So it's crazy fucked up. You know, we have trouble organizing today and a lot of the a lot of what really killed unions is somehow just like legal fucking fictions that were created to stop unions. And it's crazy how effective that is when, you know, back in the day, I mean, they sprayed water at workers. They used actual guns on people. 
uh, and that wasn't enough to stop workers. So it is. It it feels kind of sad that it was just shitty legislation to seem to hurt workers a lot more in the long run. So on their way to the plant, they were sprayed with freezing water, uh, and Bennett led Ford's opposition to the Ford Hunger March of unemployed workers. Dearborn police and Ford Service Department men, including Bennett, opened fire on the protesters as they advanced toward the Ford River Rouge complex. Four marchers were shot to death, 60 others were shot and wounded, and Bennett himself was hospitalized after being hit with a rock. Now, as the story goes, he was, like, chasing workers down in his car, and someone hit him with a fucking rock. Good on them. Didn't kill him. It, like, it really did hurt him, though. He had, like, a concussion and shit like that. But uh, he did open fire on the crowd after that, shooting indiscriminately. And when his police friends grabbed him to drag him to safety, he apparently reached into the holster of one of the cops, pulled their gun to continue firing on workers as he was being dragged away. Yeah. I love the idea that, like, the cops are trying to, like, protect him while he's opening fire into a crowd. Yeah. Yeah, fucking awesome. And, I mean, that's how fucking crazy this shit was. And this is weirdly, like, this is kind of the march that you don't hear much about. Like, we'll, we'll go into some other strikes, and there's a lot of, like, more famous examples of strikes and stuff but like this was one of the most fucking deadly i mean 60 people were wounded by a live gunfire uh four of them dead and they were sprayed with freezing water and shit this was a fucking disaster i mean incredibly fucking dangerous you know workers really were had to be fucking brave to fight for rights at this time now of course following this edsel ford's only son felt sympathy for the workers Uh, And he encouraged his father to negotiate with the union, which Ford told his son he should toughen up and be more like Harry Bennett. (laughs) So Edsel Ford, while being an awful capitalist in his own respect, I mean, he's no socialist by any means, but like the guy was a lot less sadistic than his father. We can say that. The best phrase we have for him is not a psychopath. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, this march really didn't lead to anything at the time. It was a huge effort, but it it didn't really lead to any gains at the time. And this was kind of the indication that Ford was going to be particularly difficult to actually organize because this made it very clear just how violent the Ford Service Department was going to be and how much they were going to resist any attempts at unionizing. So... Uh, yeah, this was kind of the first major loss and they knew it was going to be bad. Now, later on, I think in, uh, I don't have the date, but the Kelsey Hayes wheel company, there was a strike there and I believe I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take a guess. Someone can look this up and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was in 1936, I believe. If you're wrong, you're off the podcast and we're not doing the rest of the episodes on Walter Ruther. (laughs) That's it. Just we'll get halfway through (laughs) purged. The way this goes is Walter decided that it would be smart to get at Ford through organizing a crucial supplier. Right. So Kelsey Hayes was the company that made brake shoes for Ford. Uh, They made brake shoes and I believe wheels as well. Incredibly important. If you are making cars, they have to have brakes. And this is this is who made them. So this is kind of where like they want to organize Ford, but they know that like they're not going to be able to do that. This is where they kind of start thinking, hey, let's go after some of the suppliers. 
So yeah, it's a damn smart move. Yeah. And, and so uh, Victor, Walter's brother, actually got a job here. You know, Victor's working here and he's talking to workers. So I think this is like salting or whatever. And he's talking to workers in the plants. And one of the things they come up with real quick is that women are paid far less than men at the Kelsey Hayes plant, uh, which was normal at the time. Women were paid far less, whether even when they did more work than the men, which Victor admits pretty quickly. Yeah, there were tons of women who did plenty more work than he did, and they got paid significantly less money. And that was one of the demands of the strike was that, you know, women would be paid equally uh, to men in the plant. So Walter decided to get to Ford through organizing their supplier. They had just gone through a uh, line speed up. So like they wanted to make more shit and they just sped up the assembly line. Hey, get with it, workers. You got to work faster. Lines moving quicker and you got to keep up. And this, of course, led to injuries and like, you know, people were getting hurt pretty seriously too there was um there was a woman who fainted while working after this speed up um, because the conditions were so fucking brutal and so she she fainted victor then went to her and he asked if she could faint on schedule to which she said yes she could so the plan was was set that at a shift change in a coming week or whatever she faints and this is right at this shift change so it's like this really kind of delicate balance and victor pulls the switch to shut down the, the assembly line and he starts screaming about you know we're on strike bubba and so this is where the strike starts and this is where we see i think this is the first time in the north where we see the introduction of the sit-down strike now the sit-down strike starts in i believe auto plants in the south so in georgia i think don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure, I, I know for a fact, the sit-down strike was pioneered in the South. This is the first time it's being used in the North. Victor pulls the switch, they stop working, and he's, he gets up and he's given a, you know, a barn burner speech, right? About, you know, how this speed-up sucks and how workers need to band together, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, the manager comes down and, you know, he's screaming at people, get back to work or you're fucking fired, blah, 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 blah. And he gets to Victor, who's given his speech, and he says, no, nah, motherfucker, you got to get back to work. And he says, no, nah, there's only one person that can get us back to work. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, who's that? He says his name is Walter Ruther. Here's his phone, right? Now, at the local 174 on the west side of Detroit, so the, <laughs> the UAW local, Walter's waiting by the phone. And he knows this call is coming in. So, of course, call comes in and Walter says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll come down there. I'll get him back to work. Walter shows up to the fucking plant and apparently according to Victor, he starts finishing the speech that Victor was in the middle of mm-hmm. and the manager. doesn't. He don't like this. He's like, Hey motherfucker, I thought you were supposed to get him back to work. And Walter says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get him back to work, but I got to organize him first. And this is where they start their, their organizing drive in the plant. So the strike goes on for nine days where they're blocking up this critical uh, supplies for Ford. And through this process, they get a bunch of people to join the union and Kelsey Hayes recognizes the unions and gives workers raises, including uh, especially for women who they started paying equally to men relatively, you know, probably not perfect, but yeah, I mean, really it was, this was a huge win uh, for the UAW at the time. So this is the first instance that we see in Detroit of the sit down strike and it was incredibly effective. So hey, just real quick, uh, Connor, sorry. Um, yeah. Is everybody cool if we go till uh, six uh, our time? I don't know what that is for you guys. So another twenty more minutes, and then we'll we'll call that a night. Yeah, uh, yeah. sounds good. 
Yeah. All right. So just keep that in mind. Do like, I guess, another 10 to 15 minutes worth of material, and then we'll leave the last few minutes for our wrap up and call it part two for there. Sounds good. So let's go ahead and I will wrap it up with the Kelsey Hayes strike. And let me see if there's any contextual bits I can add in here. Ward, I noticed earlier that you have an FN box behind you, and I didn't want to interrupt anything, but is it a scar? Uh, unfortunately, no. It is uh, oh. just a FN 15. Oh, that's still pretty sweet. Oh, nice. Nice. Love the LPVO game. Uh, uh, Vortex? Uh, yeah, Vortex, and then uh, Offset uh, Hollow Sun. Nice. Weapon light. Oh, that's so sick. Hmm. That looks almost exactly like my setup. Yours is probably just a little more Gucci than mine. Yeah, it's probably more Gucci. I spent too much money on this. Like, I got everything on deals for sure, but it was still pretty pricey. Yeah, that's sick. Like, I would love to get a scar for sure. Those yeah. things are fucking sweet. I figured I'd ask. I figured the, uh, the chances were pretty low considering they're like $3,800, but yeah, you never know. Yeah. Fucking ridiculous. Uh, I mean, they, you can find them low threes, but I think going right right now is like thirty six to thirty eight hundred. Yeah, they are definitely pretty expensive, but uh, they're so fucking badass. Yeah, and they just came out with a non-reciprocating charging handle version, which is yeah, which I really like. It's even more tempting. Yeah. Uh, I'm oh, about yeah. to buy a suppressor. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been looking into that. I don't know. If I can do it right yeah. now, but. Yeah, it's um, well, depending on what suppressor you're buying, like it's gonna that's like the biggest cost of it. But then you also have the two hundred dollar tax stamp. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, like but the easiest way. What's that? In like four months of waiting. Oh, that's like no. You wish it was four months of waiting. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what their website says. But oh yeah, that's what they say. But in practice, it's like you're waiting nine to twelve months. Cool. Certain. Yeah. Nice. And then you are definitely on the list. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. for sure. But I really fucking want a suppressor. So. Oh, to tie that to the automotive things, I've seen people make them out of uh, oil filters. Oh, yeah. You could absolutely do that. Yeah. We actually yeah. mentioned that last week because I was trying to, I was fumbling for the word. It's solvent trap. But if you start searching for any kind of gun parts online, you will get recommended solvent traps, which, again, don't fucking buy one. Don't put it you together. You can do it straight up with a Fram oil filter, though, too. You just need the thread adapter. And some crazy big sights. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're going to need some really tall sights. Stack a couple risers. I could do it with a set of blueprints and a wave. Well, so you could also, if you use a 350Z uh, oil filter, don't need big sights. Very, very small. Nice. Yeah, just so you know. This probably isn't going to air, so... <laughs> I don't, I don't care if it does, but uh, yeah, the 350Z uses a very, very small... educational purposes only. Yeah, it's a very small oil filter, so you can get away with uh, using it for that. The ones I saw, they were those like big diesel truck filters, I think, to make it more silent, but I don't know. Yeah, some of those oil filters work like better than a lot of manufactured suppressors. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh. I'm about to form one of frame. <laughs> yeah, maybe not in terms of like longevity. Like they're not gonna like after like a few thousand rounds, it's not gonna hold up nearly as well. But like the first few hundred rounds, are gonna it's usually quieter than like your hmm. average mid-priced uh, suppressor. 
Well, that's that's funny because they're so at that point they're so disposable that it's cheaper to just exactly. keep going through them. Yeah. What do you just do? You just drill it out, or no? Like, just shoot through it. You just screw it the fuck on. Drill your own hole with the bullet. Call it good. That seems awfully dangerous. I feel like that's going to be accurate, but after that, you're good. Is that really how you would do it? I would assume yeah. you would drill it out. Huh. Yeah, you could just shoot through it. Call it good. <laughs> okay. I love that. Wild. Oh, you could do that with the those solvent traps that aren't drilled out. I did see somebody on like a, a forum that tried that and it didn't go so well for them. Like it kind of went off yeah. and it just like, it fucked yeah, things up. Depending on which one it is, but especially like oil filters, like just shoot through that motherfucker. We'll, we'll have know. to have like a separate conversation where we discuss firearms because I own and understand basic safety, but the, I, I am not like deep in the weeds with that stuff. It ends up sounding very much like your car talk where you start talking about manufacturers and parts and people judge you for which brand you went with on which part and everything. <laughs> yeah, a lot of crossover yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, how you guys talk about cars is how I talk about guns. It's exactly the same. <laughs> Good. Okay, that tracks, yeah. Now I'm curious if it's was more expensive. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, word of advice, don't get into both. You'll have no money ever. Oh my anything. god. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll be so fucking poor and in debt if you go Dude, for I mean, it's like, Oh, y'all, I've got like four expensive-ass fucking hobbies. Let me guess, guitars? No. <laughs> That's another one you can sink a shit ton of money into for no fucking reason. That's my number three, yeah. I, uh, I'm going to show my nerd colors here, dude. I got a huge Warhammer 40K army. That shit. Oh god. I've heard so that's expensive. Money. Oh my god, I've heard that's yeah. outrageous. Yo, and like, I, I kind of am counting multiple like automotive things as, as like separate things, but like drag racing, Harleys, and like just hopping up your regular ass vehicles. Dude, a, like Harley motors are wild. Like it's oh, yeah. dumb how expensive they are. They're also air-cooled, and I'm very against them for that reason. I'm very pro them for that reason. <laughs> Reject modernity, embrace Harley-Davidson. <laughs> Sorry, if you started rocking Porsches because they're air-cooled, we can't be friends anymore. No, strictly V-twin. Alright, good. You should put a V-twin in a Porsche, though. That would be dope. <laughs> and really piss off <laughs> some people. <laughs> like, hey, it's still air-cooled, so... Wait, Connor, you're against Harleys because they're air-cooled? Every motorcycle from that era was air-cooled. Yeah, but they're still doing it. That's the fucking difference. That's the difference. The new ones water-cooled? I guess the newest ones as of the last few years. You can still get, I'm pretty sure, air-cooled Harleys, though. No? Um, They released the new engine that they're putting in the Sportster. And it is water cooled. They might still have a big twin model that's air cooled, but they have the bigger, like the larger displacement ones are oil cooled, actually. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. It's just Harley's had like that where the back cylinder would wear out faster than the front one because it wasn't cooled. Yeah. I don't know how much of an issue that's been in decades. I think that's more old school stuff, but yeah. Okay. Could be. I also don't like that. I don't like Harley for lots of reasons. Let's just say. They're like most of the people who own them suck. And they're expensive. And they're mostly about the accessories and the gear. They make decent bikes for a lifestyle brand. Okay, here you go. (laughs) go. I I haven't seen a V-Twin in a uh, Porsche, but I did see someone took a Moto Goosey engine and put it in a Fiat 500. That was pretty sick. fucking sick. But... 
I like how Mike said we've got 20 minutes left, so we stopped talking. (laughs) (laughs) Guns and cars, guys. We got it. Let's use it this time. I was going to interrupt and say, Connor, is there any context that you wanted to give on this next strike before we wrap it up for the night? Um, No, not really. So, I mean, and I don't know, maybe you just cut all this out and like just move to me saying that's all I have for the Kelsey Hayes strike. But um, (laughs) I mean, that's that's pretty much what I've got for the Kelsey Hayes strike. It was. Walter and Victor put their heads together, came up with an idea to get into the plant. They did, and then they organized a sit-down strike. Uh, So this was, again, the first time they did the sit-down to great effect, and the sit-down strike is basically going to be their tool from this point in the uh, late 30s to the mid-40s. I mean, the sit-down strike, I think, becomes illegal after Taft-Hartley, I'm pretty sure, but like the sit-down strike, just to be clear, is where instead of walking off the job and like going outside to pick it, they just sit down in the fucking plant and make sure that the manufacturer can't operate the machinery because there's workers in the way. So it's a pretty genius way to do it where it's like, you're not giving them access to their capital to like bring in scabs and like run this shit without you. You're clogging up both the labor and the capital in in the form of the machinery. So like literal, wrench in the gear essentially like so actual this, effective protest which connor are you telling me that the, since then that over the years of uh labor unions slowly but surely losing their power in america that the law has been structured in such a way that any effective protest has been made illegal therefore giving the cops a reason and justification to come in and violently break you up and arrest you whereas ineffective protest is totally celebrated and um you know permitted in zones that are designated for exactly that I'm not going to say that's exactly what I'm saying, (laughs) but that's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, that's 100%. Yeah, that's it. And like, that's the moral of the story. And I think that's why I want to keep, and I'm sure this is going to get real fucking old. I don't know if I'll do this in every one of these episodes we do, but those questions I kind of raise at the beginning, that's why I'm raising them. The the question about legality, I think is something we have to start to challenge. Um, And maybe that's just like my inner you know, anarchists just being like, Hey, maybe we should just like not follow these laws. Like what the yeah. fuck are they going to do that? I want to ask that question. What the fuck are they going to do? Um, because we don't see sit down strikes anymore and shit is getting worse for workers. So, and verify. Yeah. So I'm just saying, All right. I'm that's so, what I want to, that's so the I'm kind of buy a suppressor and register it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the moral of the, at least this part of the story is, let's question what all this is for. You know, what does it mean to make concessions? What, you know, what kind of protest is effective and how should we think about making those sorts of decisions? How do we uh, plan for that kind of stuff? Uh, The Kelsey Hayes strike was a win. The hunger March on Ford was not such a win. It probably should have been, but of course Henry Ford was just willing to be that much more fucking craven than they expected. So workers died in that fight and it's a story that i think it's kind of swept under the rug in a lot of the documentaries and a lot of the discussion of the labor movement in general that one isn't talked about as much and i mean there was it was fucking terribly brutal so uh, anyway that's kind of where we're at now coming up on the next part i'm going to stop saying how many parts we're going to do because it seems like it keeps getting longer and longer um (laughs) but kind of what we're going to go through next for sure is going to be the GM sit-down strike, followed by what we now know today as the Battle of the Overpass, 
which was a leafleting effort at Ford. So these are going to be pretty big pivotal moments for uh, Walter and Victor Ruther and their kind of actual on the ground organizing. And this is what propels them to, or part of what propels them to leadership within the UAW uh, and the labor movement more broadly. So that's where we're at. And that's where we'll be picking up with the uh, next. Ooh, I like it. That's a good that's more about the hunger or the hunger. March is that what you said it was yeah, called? Yeah, it's you can call it a number of things. I mean, it would you could call it the march on. I think I've heard it called the Dearborn March, the March on River Rouge. They well, called I specifically, it. I find that interesting because I know that CPUSA organized similar marches in that era down south when they were doing the uh, drive for the uh, sharecroppers unions. So now I'm like, I don't know. I have like a, a lot of fascination with like the Communist Party of the USA in like that era because. That seemed to be when they were like actually getting shit done and like yep. making real moves and weren't like trying to revise themselves out of relevance. And I think a lot of I think a lot of the go between between what was happening in organizing efforts in the South and the North um, was probably the Communist Party was probably sharing a lot of this information and making sure that they knew what worked and what didn't. And that's how information was being spread. Uh, and that's how, you know. Again, we see solidarity strikes and stuff. That kind of stuff, I think, was the Communist Party infrastructure was effective at this time. So, you know, for all the criticisms that we may or may not have, that kind of interconnectedness made a huge difference in organizing efforts, it seems. So, I don't know if anyone else in here has read the book Hammer and Ho, but... I was just uh, about to bring that up. I, it's on my list to read. Um, I haven't finished it because I'm really good at getting three quarters of the way through a book and then getting distracted. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, it's about how uh, the, the Communist Party was able to organize. It was it was something like 70,000 people in the South, like uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, primarily Alabama, I think. And it was it was one of the largest. If I remember correctly, it was the, the largest membership base for CPUSA at the time. And it was mostly in poor black sharecroppers. and yeah, like that. They, you know, they they had hunger marches. They like tried to organize strikes. There was like, if if you're interested in that era of labor organizing, that's a really great book to check out. It's what really initially piqued my interest in that era of CPUSA. Yeah, All right. and um, this reminded me. I I was thinking we might want to do an episode in the future on the Numi plant in California. I think I might have mentioned it in a previous episode because it's it's now a Tesla plant. But it was a GM plant back in the day. And a lot of the, Connor, a lot of the issues that you were talking about came up back then also, you know. But it was like in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, Keeps repeating. Yeah. <laughs> Never ends, apparently. So, um, yeah. But, and, and it's going on with Tesla today still. So. Yeah, that's all I got for this installment. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Come check out our podcast if you're not one of our listeners listening to this. And you know, if you're not on our social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, marginally, Twitter, Reddit, Hexbear, you know, search cars and comrades and we should come right up. So check us out. Hell yeah. Cool. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate you uh, taking the lead on these and uh, doing all this research. It's uh, entertaining to listen to because like I said, I, you know, acquainted myself with Walter Ruther and his story and everything, but hearing it all in depth like this is uh it's pretty great to, to uh, I like story time like this. This is fun. I just hope I'm like not rambling too much because I'm no, like, no, it's all good, dude. Okay. No, this is solid. Okay. 
It's a very interesting story, I think. You guys will appreciate too when it gets to like the 60s and 70s and I get to start going on about drum because then we get to, to mix like a Walter Ruther as a, a labor organizer with also an actual Marxist-Leninist subset within the UAW. Hell yeah. yeah. I mean, the part of that movie uh, is it's finally gotten the news, right? Yeah. The like first few minutes of that movie are great because the guy, I forget what his name is, just explains Marxism like just perfectly. It's really well done. It was at that time where like, you know, you get like the Black Panther Party and you drum and stuff. Their take on Marxism was very, very enticing to a lot of people. I mean, they just they put it in a way that like my dumbass just can't. I'm not. Yeah, technically, I'm not a Marxist Leninist, So like I can't put it that great anyway, but they put it. They had a really good way of speaking to people that I'm like, yeah, that I'm with that. Like the Black Panthers literally had reading programs where they were teaching people to read using like capital and shit. So like, yeah, it's easy to get the idea across. Yeah. That'd be a tough one to learn on. I've heard that from a lot of places, but I've never seen any sort of confirmation that that was what they were learning to read with. It's a fun story. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. Actually, no, no, no. There was, there was some intense literature that, uh, I forget the book off the top of my head. Um, yeah, there was a book by a, a black Panther party member where he talked about them learning to read using, it wasn't capital specifically, but it was, it was some pretty intense political economy kind of stuff. I remember hearing that they had to look up like every other word, but they just would stick with a paragraph or a page for as long as it took and they would get through I think, it. Yeah. I feel like that was, um, I think that was an interview with Angela Davis where I, I heard that same thing. I think it was, uh, Angela Davis who said that I could be wrong though. It could be multiple people who said that. Uh, but anyway, let's finish up with the, uh, the plugs Ward, Go ahead and plug your pages. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at millennial leftists, common spelling, no underscore, and on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And then, uh, so for Jaron, we'll plug his website. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. And uh, for Cosper, their Patreon is patreon.com slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. Uh, our Twitter is Twitter slash turnleftistpod. And for everything else, just find us on the link tree. That's link tree slash turnleftist. And uh, I think that's about it. I'm going to leave off uh, the Patreon since we're already running into like a three-hour episode, but uh, I will uh, plug the Patreons again next time. But needless to say, thank you all for your contributions. We greatly appreciate it. So, um, yeah, we'll pick up next week with the continuation of the Walter Ruther story to part three of however many it takes. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) No, dude. Like I said, I can't tell you how down I am. (laughs) Okay. Great. It's been fun. Thanks again, guys. All right, we'll see you next time. Yep. Like you should. Yeah. Adios. Like you're lucky that 100-shot blow the welds on the intake. Now me and the mad scientist got to rip apart the block and replace the piston rings you fry. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers Applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interests and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. century, the U.S. government has done everything in its power to snuff out alternatives to its rule. 
From roundups to mass arrests of thousands of anarchists, socialists, leftists in the U.S., making it illegal to even be a communist, to carrying out military interventions in over 70 nations just since World War II, causing untold human misery, all in the name of fighting ideas. What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.